What we do here is go back, 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 back. It does no service to creating value for people where I came from if I won't say where I came from. And so nobody thought any thought this movie was going to work, and it did. One of my greatest struggles as a journalist is that I'm an emotional person and I'm a sensitive person. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Guys, this podcast is built on the premise that hearing stories of struggle from people who most of us just think have it made is a way for the rest of us to realize we're not alone. If you've already subscribed on iTunes and you like what you hear, thank you. And please share it with others. You can take a screenshot of your phone while you're listening, post it on your social media, tag at Matty Dell on Instagram or at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook, email it to friends, shout it from your rooftop, beat people up on the street and force them to listen, whatever. If you can leave an iTunes review, boom, I love it. Either way, I appreciate the support. I'm glad you're listening, even if this is your first one. And I hope you're as inspired by my guests as I am. And I sat in bed and I was like, what do I do? I don't, I, I, again, I still had nobody to call and I had, like, I was terrified, but I had to go out and see what it was. Welcome to this episode of 10,000 No's. My guest today is Ben O'Dell, who recently produced the hit comedy, How to Be a Latin Lover, starring his producing partner, Eugenio Derbez, alongside Salma Hayek, Rob Lowe, and Kristen Bell. They're on the brink of releasing a remake of the classic comedy Overboard, due in theaters April 13th, with Eugenio starring alongside Anna Faris and Eva Longoria. Ben opens up to me with some riveting stories of his journey, which takes us from Philly to Connecticut to New York, South America, Paris, L.A. Like a great novel I didn't want to finish. I was so captivated, we just kept rolling. I hope you find his stories as colorful and insightful as I did. Ben O'Dell. So we found out early on in in meeting each other that we uh, we have a common person and yeah. you you played lacrosse with a guy that was my brother's immediate roommate in college yeah. at uh kent yeah right? steve so, virtue yeah steve virtue yeah the virch yeah um and but you grew up in in philly yeah i grew up in philadelphia in the suburbs of philadelphia mainline philadelphia okay and uh i was there until i was uh, 14 and then i went to boarding school okay uh, and siblings yeah i got an older brother and I have uh, two stepsisters and uh, a half-brother and a half-sister. Wow. So parents divorced, dad remarried, had two kids, mom remarried, and her husband already had two kids. So those are the stepkids. So it's like a Brady Bunch situation. Yeah, and we're all really tight. You're and, all really yeah, tight? Yeah. Cool. Anybody else in this uh, in this crazy business? No, no? not even close. Um my two younger, my half-brother and half-sister, who both grew up in New York City, are both in the tech world, okay. uh, as one would be if you're at that age. Yeah. And uh, my older brother, uh, he, he, he runs a retirement fund for Intel, which is a you know, multi-billion dollar fund. And uh, so he's a total business guy. And then my uh, stepsister's one's a speech pathologist, and the other one's a, a headhunter. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's a pretty diverse group. Yeah, and where are they? They're all on the East Coast, and you're the two only sisters one are in Philly. Uh, one brother in New York. I got a uh, my half sister moved to um, Bend, Oregon, just recently. Oh, yeah. my my uh, my brother has gone skiing up there. Um, I believe in yeah, Bend. It's supposed to be great. It's a pre- yeah, 
We're going up in the spring. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's supposed to be beautiful up there. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so you, you grew up in Philly. I grew up in Philly, but the key to everything, to my entire life, happened when I was six years old. And our neighbors, um, the our neighbors who we were really close with, the the mom had gone to boarding school with a Colombian woman named Claudette. And they they kept in touch. And so the neighbors sent their like eight-year-old daughter to Colombia and the Colombian family sent their 11-year-old kid up to live with the neighbor. And we ended up basically adopting this kid. He's, his name's Mario. I just saw him a couple months ago. This is, you know, <laughs> 42 years ago. Wow, and that's crazy. That that relationship grew into um, my father becoming very close to that family. And then he went down to Colombia for a while uh, for like a vacation, and then they that whole family ended up moving to Philadelphia, and they stayed in our house for a summer. And I was twelve at that point, and I wanted to be adopted by like we were in like the most boring white suburb, and all of a sudden this crazy Colombian family moves in, and I was like, I want to be with these people forever, and they were just awesome. And it was like I always say, like that you know. They're either laughing or yelling. There's no zero. It's never mellow. Yeah. And they're just great people. And so we we ended up, my dad ended up marrying into that family. So they became family at that point. And, uh, and then my, they had two kids, um, my half-brother and half-sister, Manuel and Sebastian. But then I went to Columbia when I was 15 with my best friend. Uh, and it was just insane. And we did everything you would expect a 15-year-old to do. So when you say you went when we you went were 15, with your, you went for a summer. Your yeah. parents let you go. Just Amazingly. To, and, and did you stay with that family down yeah. there? You did. Okay. And they were so crazy that that was where all the access to insanity was. But, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but I was just really uh, kind of fascinated by different cultures and especially specifically that specific Latino culture, because there's so many different kinds of Latino. But um, and so I immediately kind of needed to that in my life forever. And I I kept going back, went back a few times after that. And then when I was 22, I went to St. Lawrence University in upstate New York and then worked in the film business, wanted to get in the film industry Spent a year in New York, and I worked as a production assistant on a movie called Jersey Girls um, with Jamie Gertz and uh, Dylan McDermott. McDermott? Yeah. And then I uh, did, an, and I was worked in locations on that one, and then I did another movie called Mac, which John Turturro directed, which is actually an amazing film and amazing to watch him work. And I worked for the Maisel Brothers, who were a documentary film team, um, who had done some amazing stuff like Grey Gardens. And so I was around them. That was my first year. Uh, and then I was also reading scripts for Art Linson, who was uh, had produced, produced movies like The Untouchables. Um, so I had like my, you know, I had a liberal arts education at St. Lawrence. And then I had my like liberal arts professional education the first year. I saw a little of everything. I was writing scripts in my free time. And I realized that I had no life experience so I decided to uh, take up my da- my dad, a friend of the family, a Colombian friend, was a, a producer in Colombia. She produced commercials, and she said, "Come on down, you can work for me." 
So after a year in New York, I said, if I want to be a writer, at the time I wanted to be a screenwriter, then I should, uh, I need life experience. So I decided to move to Columbia. Wow. And uh, I, I was 22. And I just, like, my dad was like, look, if you look at the U.S. census, Latinos are going to be, you know, by 2000, it was going to be like 40 million Latinos. If you understand what Latinos want and you make content for them, you you can have a career. And all I heard was go to Columbia, beautiful women. <laughs> Wait, what did your drugs. dad do? Because I think you told me that. I don't think I realized all of the the prior history with Columbia, with the family friends. But you did tell me, I think the first time I met you, that you went there early in your 20s and that you, you told me that your dad had said that. What did your dad do? He's uh, a lawyer. He's a lawyer. Yeah, still a lawyer. But he just had a, he just had a business sense that, that- He's just a smart, that, he's a, yeah. one of the smartest people I know. And he just, he, he knew I had a real affinity for that family. So it seemed to make sense. I really didn't, I didn't take that seriously. It felt like a really good excuse for you so to that go I to would Columbia. feel not guilty for going <laughs> on this trip. And how long did you think you were going for? And how long did you end up I, really going for? I thought for? I was going for a year and I stayed for seven years. Wow. Yeah. So and I is get, that the trip where you met your wife? Or? No, I no. met her in Miami years later. Oh, okay. Um, but she's, she's, she's Colombian. Colombian. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So Lu Lucia, Lucia, Lucia. Yeah. I, I wanted to call her Lucia when I met her. Right. I, I was That's the Italian, the Italian in sure. me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she, so, so I got there when I was 22. I moved in with her, <laughs> her father, who was the, cra literally the craziest guy I knew and the most amazing human being. His name was Poncho. And, uh, I went to stay with him. And so he picks me up at the airport and he says, so how long are you staying for? And I said a year. And he's, sort of looks at me and he goes, really? <laughs> he thought I was coming for a month. <laughs> and so he got, we got back to the apartment and he packed up his, his stuff with his crazy girlfriend and said, I'll see you later. Have a good weekend. I didn't speak the language. I didn't know my way around the city. And he just, he was like, I'm not dealing with this guy. Yeah. So I was literally my first weekend in Colombia, no Spanish, had no idea where I was. I didn't know anybody. I and mean, if anything had happened to me, I didn't have anyone to call. And I just remember going to this little tienda, which was two blocks from there, and I was terrified just to order a sandwich, you know? And it took me, you know, a couple of days just to get used to leaving the apartment. And uh, that, was, that was pretty funny. But about two months into living there, uh, it was a Sunday night, and he was never there. He just, I think, when he realized I was going to be there, he just didn't want to be there. <laughs> and eventually we became very close, and he stayed there more often, but... Um, because he had a house out in the country and uh, I was just going to bed. It was around nine, nine o'clock. And I heard a concussion that was so loud. And if, you know, if you've never heard a bomb go off, like you've never heard a sound like that. You know, if you've lived in Israel or somewhere where there's actual, you know, uh, warfare occasionally, it, it, you, you probably know what it is, but I'd never heard anything that loud in my life. And it was, uh, and this apartment was so old that the the windows um, didn't have any caulking on, uh, you know, the caulking at all kind of dried up. So every window rattled. And and I was like, I knew it was a bomb. I had no idea why. And I sat in bed and I was like, what do I do? I don't, I, I, again, I still had nobody to call. And I had, like, I was terrified. But I had to go out and see what it was. So I 
went downstairs and walked into the street and it, he lived on 72nd and 9th and 72nd was like a double avenue. It was a really wide avenue. And you could see this just trail of smoke. And I followed it all the way up to, to 7th Avenue, which is kind of the, uh, the biggest throughway from north to south in Bogota. And right in the middle of 7th Avenue was a car block, smoking car block, you know, a one ton piece of metal just sitting in the middle of the street. And when I looked up down the street, there was a pizza parlor that had been completely blown out. And you could see kind of the the shrapnel of the car that had been there and all the windows in the neighborhood had been blown out. And the th most terrifying part about it was within about five or 10 minutes, everybody from the neighborhood had come out onto the street and they were sort of talking and then like somebody would notice a neighbor and be like, Hey, you know, and, then they, the, the street vendor starts selling cigarettes and popcorn. And I was, and like, it was just like a normal occurrence. Yeah. I mean, it, I, normal, I don't want to, I don't want to overly, but it was, yeah. it wasn't as terrifying for them because there had been a lot of violence around that period. Um, and what it was, which we found out the next morning was Pablo Escobar was in prison and he didn't want to be extradited. And so he had made a, a threat to the uh, politicians that he was going to set off a car bomb every month in Bogota near the houses of the politicians until they eliminated the possibility of extradition. And like clockwork, every month the car bomb went off for the first year I lived there. And it was just terrifying. I mean, I, I wow. got to a point and I only look back now and go, what the hell was I thinking? But I'd walk down the street looking at cars and if, if if a car seemed like it was weighed too heavily in the back i'd cross the other side thinking it might be full of dynamite yeah um and this is like what early 90s at this yeah, it point? was 92 92 and you're 21 years old 22 yeah. 22 okay yeah. all right because you did a year so you went to st lawrence you do the year you go down there and this is right in the beginning this is like within the first yeah couple that of, was two within the first week first bomb was two months after two i months. got there yeah and were you even speaking the language yet no, at this point? No, not at all. I was taking, I took a course where, uh, like a two-month course, and I was in the middle of it, at, where you, at Los Andes, which is kind of the you know, the premier uh, university there. And they had like a, you know, for foreigners, you could do this two-month crash course. And I had taken uh, Spanish in high school. I was a shitty student, but I, you know, I, I absorbed a little of it. So I at least had the uh, grammar down. And then within that, by the time I got out of those two months, I could I could communicate like a caveman, and that was essentially as as far as I like, everything was in the pre present tense. But yeah. I could point to things and get what I needed. You can get it, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that was a, a good enough of a start. But uh, well, let me ask you something. You just said you were you were not a student yeah. in school, which yeah. is kind of a recurring theme. Uh, I feel yeah. like with uh, a lot of people I know that have that have done well, we're not great students. And like, how did that kind of, uh, I'm imagining in some way shaped your worldview, but how do you think that has contributed to what you do now, how you do what you do now in terms of like, did you always feel like I just don't get it in school or were you like, I just don't care about school? What was the... Yeah, any any subject I cared about, I did well in, but... There were a lot of subjects I didn't care about. <laughs> you know? Were you into sports or were yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I played lacrosse and, and I played squash and I played soccer. Yeah. You know, prep school kid. 
Yeah. But uh, yeah, I love sports. And, you know, there were certain class I love. I loved English. I loved uh, anything like, you know, uh, you know, reading fiction up to a point. I didn't, I liked reading what I liked reading. I didn't like reading what they told me to read. Um, I just didn't like being told what to do, basically. Yeah. And I also was just tired all the time. Like in boarding school, especially, you know, you were out at 10, you had to wake up at a certain hour to go to breakfast. I was always tired. Uh, I would sneak between like the first two classes. I would sleep under my bed while everyone was at ch chapel because they would check the room. So you had to sleep under your bed. <laughs> and just to get that like 10 minutes to, to to feel a little bit better in the day. But I was always tired. When, when you say you were always tired, like was it from like just DNA or what you were yeah, eating or you were up, know, up later just, than everybody? Or you I just really just, just never got enough sleep for yeah, whatever yeah, reason. Yeah. And, you know, when like school was... Uh, I, I had a vivid imagination. Like, I was great at writing. I, I, I became an editor of the newspaper, you know. Um, but, like, I also had a really bad memory. Like, I still do. I can't, I can't retain information. And it's actually become an interesting, I think, asset as a, as a producer because I'll read a script, and then if there, a new draft comes in a month later, I don't remember it that well. Right. So I read it again with fresh eyes. And I remember once <laughs> I spent a day with Milos Foreman, one of the great days of my life. And he said, like, a director's most important strength is being able to see something over and over again with fresh eyes. That's what makes a director great. Uh, you know, when you're on the ninth take with an actor, if you can see it as if you had never seen it before, and some people can do that well, I just have a crappy memory. I found out years later, my my stepsister, as I said, was a speech pathologist, and she talked a lot about. Um, she she was I was complaining about my memory. She said, "Oh yeah, of course you have a bad memory. You're ambidextrous." So I I I throw with my right hand, I write with my left hand, and I can basically change. I'm pretty interchangeable. And she said, "When you are ambidextrous, your brain develops in little patches all over the place. So when you're right-handed." Or left-handed, it, it kind of all develops on one side of your brain. I don't remember which side. I think it's the opposite side of your brain to your hand. But when you're ambidextrous, it kind of develops in little patches, and so it's very hard to retain memory. I don't know if this is true. That's interesting. But I, 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 I don't know if I'm a full-on ambidextrous, but I'm kind of like a... I consider myself a lefty. I, I write lefty. I throw baseball lefty, yeah. but I batted righty. Yes, yeah, so I golfed, which I'm terrible. I, I was I would be righty. Yeah. I did hockey for like a year when I was young. I was righty, yeah. lacrosse better, right. righty this yeah. way, but lefty with one hand. Right, and and uh, I've never heard. And how's your memory? That theory, interesting. I I always think I have a a, a great, really great memory for some things. Yeah. But then there are other things like sometimes, uh, I mean, you're, you're just making me think this as, as you're talking about movies. I could watch a movie and if I've only seen it once, I could love it. Yeah. I love the tone of it. I yeah. love it. And then I start talking to someone and I they're almost like, how did it end? And I'm like, how did it end? You know, yeah. there, there are times yeah. that, that it kind of flows me away that happens. Um And then those movies that I've seen over and over but again. But can you remember emotionally how a movie ends? Like how you yeah felt yeah no no I can remember I it, it's like I'm I'm big on tone and pieces you know yeah. pieces of it and like it's yeah the feel the yeah. feelings of it that's but, exactly about my memory but I'm not always uh, except for the ones that I've watched over and over where I kind of know their structure and their story and there's there are a few that I feel like I I talk about in so many 
conversations. Big Lebowski, just, for example. Big Lebowski, <laughs> but that that you know, it, it's funny. I've the Coen Brothers. Times. I've got a weird thing with the Coen Brothers, where most of their movies, the first time I see them. I always wish I liked them more yeah. because I feel like I'm not in yep. on it. And it takes me a while of of watching them to kind of get it. Uh, and then there are the movies that I feel like I end up like, you know, talking about philosophically are like Shawshank. Yeah. And uh, and even like The Matrix. I feel yeah. like there's always these, these parallels. To, again, oh, yeah. you did? yeah. yeah. Yeah, did it hold up? It does. I mean, it's not. There's quite a couple as of things. Yeah, I, I went back yeah. and I saw it. I'm like, there are a couple of things where it, it, you, it, it doesn't quite hold. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, now. but thematically and oh, like what it's about is is where yeah. I really you know grasp onto. Then Cool Hand Luke movies like that. Uh-huh. Um, Apocalypse Now, I can see Apocalypse Now. Times. Yeah, Godfather. Um, and then there's also like the ones we watched in college over and over again, like, you know, the Caddyshacks and the Fletches. And I just the, watched Caddyshack the, again, too. You know. Amazing. Yeah. Caddyshack is. Anyway, yeah. uh, we digress. <laughs> um, but, uh, okay, so so you're in Philly. Now, I always think of, you, you make it sound like you had this really, aside from the Colombian influence, like you had this kind of... Um, like a, almost like it was like boring or or very kind I, I of think, standard. I but, just think I needed to get out of there. Yeah. I mean, you know, my dad's Jewish, even though my last name's Odell. It's really Odesky a couple generations ago. And my mom was uh, um, Protestant. I went to a, a Episcopal Academy, which was kind of a, you know, upper class private school. Most of my friends, when I was like, by the time I got to sixth or seventh grade, all my friends were uh, African-American on scholarships. Like, those were the coolest guys. And they were the edgiest guys. And so I feel like even at that age, I was already sort of trying to get out of there. And I didn't know any better. So I went to boarding school because I thought I was getting out. But I was, on some level, you are. Because the truth is, like, and I didn't realize this until I went back for my 25th. Um, But it was a pretty interesting group of kids. I mean... They're interesting on a lot of levels, but one is because anyone who sends their kids away that early is, you know, it's it's different. And the kids become independent so quickly. And, like, when I went back for the 25th, I, I was just blown away by at what everybody was doing with their lives. I and mean, it was amazing. All unique everybody, kind of— You know, the people—by the way, the people that go back are the ones that want to talk about their lives, right? Yeah. So— you know that that skews your your view, but you know half the kids were there, and they were all living these amazing lives. But you know it was still like wealthy, mostly wealthy white people. Yeah, and and I like I still, and then I went to St. Lawrence, which was still the same. And I have tons of friends from that part. It's not there's nothing, but I was looking for more. Like I wanted a different point of view, and 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 I think that influence of that Colombian family. It's amazing. Like how, when you're a kid, I mean, I hear stories about this all the time where like somebody grows up next to like a Mexican family and it changes their life. It just, because they're exposed to a different point of view. And, you know, I think I always kind of wanted out of that, but I look back now and I go back there and I still, you know, there's a lot of great people, you know, a lot of great people from boarding school, from college, funny, great people i just i feel like i and i'm sure you feel this too because you know you became an actor and you came from a world where there weren't a lot of actors right and so it's not like you went to an art school 
Yeah. So you go back, you see your lacrosse buddies, and it's like you love them, but there's it's like you almost live dual lives, right? Because yeah. you're out here and you have this world, and it's so different from the lives they're living. And, uh, you know, that's kind of, I th- for whatever reason, I feel like I, I needed that. I was pushing always to, like, kind of rebel against whatever it was that was sort of the norm. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I Yeah, I, I felt like that. I've actually even felt that I get cast in roles where my characters have a foot in two different worlds. Oh, yeah. And, and that's something that's, like, kind of followed me around, I right. think. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe every character has that they're they're toggling between, but I I feel like I've I've kind of noticed that, and I've always had that uh, that same thing where I've related to a bunch of different groups of people. Even in high school, I felt like I was friends with a lot of different people. In college, it was the same way. I kind of had the the guys that I lived with, and then I had the lacrosse players, right, and then I right, left right. lacrosse to go be, you know, do a be play. An actor, and, yeah. and so, it, so it kind of, um, yeah. Well, and as so, an actor, that's great, because you feed off all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, really, yeah. I mean, if you were to psychoanalyze it, it's like, yeah, as an actor, you're getting to you know, step into all these different lives and see what it's like and, you know, reach around in there for a little bit. And then and then come back out to your own your own life. Um, so okay, so talk about that transition. Then you you worked with as a really young guy, like twenty one years old in New York. You worked with some cool people yeah. that first year. You go down there. You don't know the culture. Um, you're kind of sounds like wide eyed and just going like, wow, what what is down here? Now, how did you kind of um, get into, or, or did you get into the production and film world when you were down there? And I how? mean, this is a great story. So the woman that was supposed to hire me to uh, help her with her commercials, uh, when I got there, there was no electricity from nine in the morning until 11 in the morning. And then again, from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. The, le- the lights would go out in Bogota. Okay, and the reason was the, just just in her place, or just pure? Yeah, no, no, like, like, in the city. Oh, and it, I mean, maybe it was in different sections of the city, but where I lived, no, it was actually I think all of Bogota, you know. And there would only be street lights, and they. So what had happened is the Minister of Energy had stolen like a half a billion dollars <laughs> that was needed to build a dam that would prevent this power shortage, which they had, and so. <laughs> So when I got there, six to that nine. That sounds like a Coen Brothers movie, <laughs> yeah. actually, right there. You're right. It's actually a really good, it's funny, <laughs> no one, I don't think I've ever seen that depicted in, in any Colombian television, but it was such a weird time. And so from 6 to 9 p.m. at night, there's no television. Well, if you're producing commercials, that's peak hours. Like, if they're, if you're not making commercials for that period, there are no commercials. Yeah. And so the woman said to me, I'm getting the fuck out of here. This place is too backward ass. She was Colombian. Uh, I'm going to the States. See you later. So, and I didn't care. Like, I was like, okay, great. That was my excuse to get here. Um, so how I, early on into your, your I voyage? I, like a month or two. Oh, in. okay. So I was still <laughs> studying at, at Andes. So I, I met a guy there named Andre, who I've just reconnected to uh, on Facebook, the beauty of Facebook. And he was this British guy from Scunthorpe, like really like working class, you know, uh, tough. He had been traveling all over Latin America, like in a pair of like old 
worn down army boots. That was his only pair of shoes and like a, you know, an old ratty jacket. And he had traveled all over the place and he landed in Bogota and was taking a class at Los Andes, the same one I was. So we ended up becoming fast friends and uh, decided to travel from Bogota all the way up to Santa Marta, which is at the top of the north of Colombia. And then we traveled all the way back down to Ecuador on buses. How long of a trip is this? So the trip from Bogota. Like weeks or months? Well, yeah, this was like uh, a month or two. A month or two. Yeah. And how do you, if you don't mind me asking, like, how do you pay for that? Were you working so down there? My I mean, dad, or my you... dad, when I graduated, my dad said, I'll, I'll give you some money for that year. So yeah. it wasn't a lot. It was a couple hundred dollars a month. But... And you guys just like staying in youth hostels or crappy yeah, places really or shitty, whatever. Yeah, really shitty yeah. places, which was so much fun. Yeah. And, and the thing is like, there was a whole circuit of people. Uh, first of all, no one would travel in Colombia at this time, right? So if you were going through Colombia, it was it was a certain kind of traveler. They were mostly Australians and Israelis because <laughs> Australians will travel anywhere and Israelis have no fear. Yeah. So, but then you get to a, a few Germans and a few Brits. And so they're all a little little wacky. Yeah. And you when you're getting on these buses and heading, you're all kind of heading to the same places. So you run it, you know, you run into the same people over and over again, and you might, you might diverge, and they go to one town, you go to another, but you'll run into them again, and it's just party, party town everywhere you go. Um, and so we did that all the way up and down the country. But the, you know, this is a time when the gorilla had really. I mean, there's still a lot of problems with the gorilla, but you know, at the time it was pretty. We went through some pretty scary areas, and when the bus was stopped, it was either the army or the gorilla. And if the gorilla stopped you, they were looking for Americans. So it was terrifying. Holy. Yeah. And uh, now, were you just too young and dumb to be afraid enough? Or were, were you just like, well, whatever? I'm, I'm. No, I wasn't. I was, I was afraid at times, but not afraid enough. Yeah. There was a time we were down in the Looking south. back, should you have been? Like, like, did you get really lucky to, to come out of there alive? Or do you think like- I mean, it look, just I think the sounds- odds were worse there than when I was living in suburban yeah. Philadelphia. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, I guess it was pretty, it was pretty crazy. But, you know, your, your odds are still pretty good in these situations. Like, it wasn't like they were grabbing. There weren't that many Americans there. They didn't know, you know, it wasn't an organized system, but- I remember we were at a bar in the south of Colombia with these British people, and this guy gets really drunk, and he says, "I'm a gorilla," and he's like, "I eat Americans for breakfast." And he was, he was, uh, he goes around the room, and he's like, "Where are you guys from?" And he goes, "British, British." He's like, "Ah, Brits," uh, and he comes to me, and I'm like, "I'm from Canada," and one somebody drunkenly is like, "No, he's not. He's from the United States." So he sits in, he's like, "I." And he goes on and on and on. And so I was like, what do I do? Like, I don't know if this guy's serious, if he has a gun, if he's going to do something to me. Uh, and he was, he was like, really like talking about the States and, you know, how, he, how he wanted to hurt me. And so I was like, all right, well, let me buy you a drink. And I just bought him like 10 aguardientes. <laughs> he was, he couldn't move by the time I walked. He was paralyzed, just passed out. Self-defense 101. <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> Get him drunk. Yeah. yeah but there was crazy stories like that all the time. Um, and so you go, you do that. You, you um, I mean, I would imagine that's just adventure after adventure. And you come back from that to Bogota. Yeah. Is that, am I pronouncing yeah. it right? Yeah, yeah, Bogota. Yeah. I have that. Yeah, very nice. Um, and, and 
now that woman has left. Yeah. So you don't have a job. Right. And are you, what do you do at this point? Like how quickly did you get into, like what was the film world down there? What was the so I world? So, so I was, I started immediately kind of watching Colombian television. I didn't speak Spanish very well, but I was just curious what they were making there. And there was, they would make like one or two movies a year. And so I'd go see whatever I could. And I was watching all the Latin American cinema. And Latin American cinema, you know, from the 60s until probably the 90s was very political. Like they weren't really making anything that was commercial or genre. It was all very political. And I was sort of see, looking at what was around, but I, I couldn't speak the language well enough. But I managed to find a job teaching English at a private uni uh, high school. Uh, and I was just in Colombia this year, so this is now, you know, 30 years later. No, not quite, 25 years later, and ran into students of mine from that time. And they were, they're, like, they're still friends, and we WhatsApp each other. Um, <laughs> but they were, like, in ninth, 10th, and 11th grade, and I was 22. So they were, some of them were, like, three or four years younger than me. Uh, and it was it was a crazy experience. I never wanted to be an English teacher. I just, I, I didn't feel good. Like I'm the laziest human being on the planet, but I feel terrible when I'm being lazy. So I'm always <laughs> doing something, yeah. but I don't want to be doing, I wanted yeah. to sit around. I wish I could sit around. I just, I'm not capable of it. Um, and so I got a job out of boredom really. And then from there, the, the director of the school because I was sort of writing stuff for them and I was the English teacher. And so she said, you should go talk to my husband who had a magazine called Dinero Magazine, which is basically like the Forbes of Colombia. And I ended up becoming a, a journalist for them. And in the midst of all this, there was this newspaper called the Colombian Post, which was an English language newspaper for, for expats. And I decided I would go write for them. So I just showed up one day at their headquarters and the editor-in-chief was a guy named Tom Quinn. And Tom was an old hippie. He was friends with Hunter S. Thompson. And he's actually fear and loathing on the campaign trail. He's in that. I think he was actually in a couple of his books. Really? Yeah. And he ran hard with Hunter. So he had some crazy stories. And Tom was like, he was like six foot two. He looked Asian, but he was Irish had green eyes, and he talked like this, man. Everything was like crazy, man. <laughs> and he would—he was the best storyteller on the planet. And so I immediately just, I was like, I fell in love with this guy. He was he became my mentor, and I said, I want to write for your newspaper. I'd like to write movie reviews because it just felt like an easy way to, like, plug into that. So they gave me a job, and the next thing you know, all the distributors are, you know, sending me to movies and movie premieres and— so I got to, and then I would write about them and uh, and publish them in this newspaper. So, you know, that became another way sort of into it. But the way I actually, the crazy, and the, and this is like, because I was thinking a lot about 10,000 no's. Like, I, I realized, like, I never waited for someone to give me an opportunity. And I always looked for the back door in. And so I go to Columbia and I'm like, I start looking at the television there and... I was like, this this is pretty good. Like, why don't I write for Spanish on television? I did not really speak Spanish when I, this thought occurred to me. And so I came up with an idea for, and this was pre-reality shows, but I was like, what if we did a show about like extreme lifestyles, extreme sports, just, or, you, you know, you could be like, uh, you know, paragliding, or maybe you do a, a story about 
the window washer because when you see these guys washing windows in Columbia, like they're on like one yeah. cord, there's yeah. no safety. So I was like, maybe you could do both of those. Like maybe that's what the show. And so we, we went out with these paragliders and we shot this little eight minute video and we cut a pilot together and we took it to this place called Senpro, which was a production company. And we showed it to this woman and she's like, this is going to be too expensive to make. But I noticed on your resume that you studied screenwriting. And at this point, I had an, I had a, a degree in English, but I had taken one course with Robert McKee. And she saw that. And so she's like, we need a writer for this, this kid's show. And, and this is where it gets really crazy. The, the lead male on that show had lived in New York and studied, like, I think it's Stella Adler and had become friends with my stepmother because remember my dad married a Colombian woman yeah. and he was Colombian. So I was friends with him. So when I, when this woman offered me the show, it was called De Pies a Cabeza, which means from head to toe. And uh, it was about a kid's soccer team. And so um, I called up Felipe Noguera, who was the star. And I was like, can you explain to me? Like, cause they wanted me to pitch uh, like a, a concept for the show. And so he sat down, he showed me a couple episodes, explained all the character dynamics. And then I went off and wrote uh, like a, like a two page pitch. And I had a girlfriend at the time who was bilingual and she was a seamstress. So she would sew dresses with one hand and she could cradle the phone. So I would <laughs> write in Spanish, but I needed her to translate. I didn't have a computer then. So, you know, it was so slow. Yeah. So she would just translate for me. And so I wrote this thing out brought it down. They hired me. And so I became a writer in this writer's room for the show in Spanish. And I still barely spoke it. And, mean, and the writer's room is all Spanish speaking. Yeah. And you're the only American dude in there. I mean, I was the only. And how old are you? 24, 25? Yeah, 24, yeah. Holy so, shit. So I start there and then. And was this a big show down there? Was this like it a, was? It was a pretty big, I mean, it was a kid. It was like a family show, but it, yeah. yeah, it was pretty well known. Yeah. And then from there, uh, I said to Tom one day, um, I said, Tom, if you could make a movie about something in Colombia that wasn't narco, tr narco trafficking, because at the time, Colombians were very sensitive to that. You know, si since then, they now make, er they're making two or three soap operas a year about narco trafficking but at the time in the 90s because it was so prevalent and it was in their faces and people were watching their families get killed and they, didn't it was, want it. they didn't want it yeah so i said what what's another story we could tell and he said without missing a beat he said emerald so columbia produces 60 percent of the world's emeralds and it all happens in this little area called muso which is you know it's a there's no government presence really there's it's a feudal system so you have these like warlords who control these mines and they lease them for like 40 years at a time from the government. And they have these miners who work there for food and shelter 28 days of the month. And then two days of the month, they keep whatever they find. And you can put a million dollars in the palm of your hand. So imagine in a place where there's no government presence, no police, <laughs> everyone's armed, and you can carry large amounts of, of, of currency or you know precious gems in your pocket. It was a crazy wild west. And he said, yeah. what if we set something in that world? And then 
and it ended up coming back to narco-trafficking because there was this moment where we were telling from the other side where Pablo Escobar had this guy named Rodriguez Gacha. If you ever watched Narcos, it was Louis Guzman in, 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 in Narcos, but in the first season. But Rodriguez Gacha was this crazy guy who decided he was going to go into the Emerald Zone and take it over and control it because the Emerald business was great, but the cocaine business was much better yeah. and they could launder money so easily through emerald. So he figured if they could take over the emerald zone and the emerald miners who had been there for a hundred years and were crazier and they were armed to the teeth, um, they pushed them back out. Like they came in with a whole army and they pushed them out. So, and they, they used the DEA. This is, this is the myth. It turns out this isn't all true, but at the time, this is what we thought. They actually coordinated with the DEA to kill Rodriguez Gacha and his son. So that was kind of, we were going to tell the story through the DEA who gets involved in this crazy story. So we put together this pitch and I flew back to New York to pitch it to the really the one producer I knew. And it was this is such a good story. I got to tell this whole story. So uh, Tribeca Film Center, uh, Robert De Niro's company, yeah. I knew one of their creative executives there, a guy named Scott something. I don't even remember his name anymore. And because I had been reading scripts for Art Linson, who had an office in that building, along with the Weinsteins and the rest of them. So I called him up and was like, I got a pitch for you. And he says, great, come on in. Come on in at 6 o'clock and you can pitch this thing to me. I was so It was my first pitch ever. And I went and still 24 or 25 or this yeah, is a little I was bit after you was 24. Okay. So I, I, I go to him. I, th by the way, actually this was before I started writing for, um, the Piazza Cabeza. But I, so I go back and I meet with a screenwriter, uh, who kind of tells me how to pitch. And, and, and so I sort of know what I'm doing and, I'm so nervous that before the meeting, I go into a bar and I'm like, I'm just going to have one beer just to take the. And so it was like they it was middle. It was like four in the afternoon. So it's like happy hour. And you could get like one beer for a dollar, but you could get a pitcher for three bucks. I'm like, <laughs> pitcher, it must be a little bigger than a beer, right? Like, <laughs> put a pitcher this big in front of me. And I'm so nervous. I look down and the pitcher's gone. Like, I didn't even notice I drank it. Yeah. And I get up. I'm like, ah, but I'm fine. As soon as I get up, the bar starts spinning. I'm shit-faced. And I go into this pitch obliterated. Like, I barely remember it. But I was very relaxed. And <laughs> at the end of it, I don't know if he was terrified or, or, like, completely engaged by the story. But he said, that's a great story. We have something about gold miners in Brazil. So this probably doesn't work for us. But anytime you want, come back and pitch me something else. So I took that. I ended up staying in New York for about eight months and working on Wall Street, which is a whole other because I was trying to figure out my next move. And I almost got sucked back in. I was I was working as a writer for Morgan Stanley and writing brochures and just. And working at their place, uh, Times Square? No, working or downtown. Downtown. To, okay. to Twin Towers. Oh, okay. And, uh, and so, and I was making, they were paying me a lot of money. And then I said, I got, what am I doing? And I moved, I flew back to Columbia. That's when I got the job, uh, for that show. And I shot the pilot and then, but what I said to Tom about the Emerald thing, I was like, cause I pitched it to like four or five producers and they all said, you're not a writer. Like you have no writing samples, go write it. And if, if it's good, we'll buy it from you. So I said to Tom, I said, look, why don't we, why don't we, sh why don't we sell this as a, as a TV show? 
in Columbia. So we kind of tweaked it and we turned it into a, a sort of- Now, is he still writing for the the? Yeah, he was writing for Time the, News. He was the Time News Andy's okay. correspondent. He had, he was the editor of the Columbian Post. He worked for Forbes. He was just like- all He was over. all over, okay. Yeah. And he also had a column in the in the, in, in El Tiempo, which was like the New York Times of Columbia. So he, uh, I said, why don't we write it as a show? And we turned it in, we took this the structure of the fugitive. So we had a guy who, who goes into the Emerald Zone um, and he gets caught up in, there's a drug called Bordandanga, which, and I'd heard this story from somebody, this really nice guy who, who I'd met through my Colombian family. And they said, he went to jail for, for manslaughter. And I was like, that guy's so nice. I said, well... He was in a bar in the Llanos, which is kind of cowboy country, and he, somebody had drugged his drink, and when you take Bordandanga, you lose your will, your will, you can, you'll do whatever you're told. Somebody put a gun in his hand and pointed to the other side of the room and said, go kill that guy, and that's he woke up in jail. And so I was like, that's the ma- wow. amazing beginning. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how the, the show begins. This guy goes in the Emerald Zone, he's looking for something. Uh, and he basically gets <laughs> drugged and he sets off this war between these two warlords because he kills the wrong guy. That's a great opening, man. And the okay. guy who, who drugged him uh, has one green eye and one blue eye. So it's instead of the you know, <laughs> yeah. the man with one arm, it was like the man with one green eye. But, yeah. <laughs> but it all took place in the Emerald Zone. And every week he would end up in a different town in the Emerald Zone trying to prove his innocence and he c- can never get out of there. You know, and like he'd end up in a town full of like widows, which there really is a town like this, that all the women who live there, their men were killed in this emerald war that had gone on. So did you, you sold this? We sold it. You made it? We sold it. We made a hundred episodes and it became the highest rated show on Colombian television. And Holy crap. Really? It, yeah. <laughs> it was not great. And by the way, if you Google Fuego Verde uh, and... Uh, TV show or Saturday uh, the television, so you you can see the opening credits and you can watch the show. And we used to call it special defects. Like Tom and I, you know, as I say, was an old hippie, so we'd roll up spleef and we would every Tuesday night when the show would come on, we would um, we would watch it and we would really like laugh our heads off because it was not well made. But the truth is, in Colombia, w- the reason we did an action show is because I was watching the television there and everything was made for women. It was all soap operas. It was all very emotional, soapy shows. And the men were either watching sports or news or they were watching soap operas with their wives, but there's nothing male driven. So, and this is before cable. And so I said, well, let's do an action adventure show. And there was no budget. I think the budget was like $50,000 an episode. And but it was real TV. I mean, it's, it's yeah. real. It was and like we shot the first five like, episodes in the Emerald Zone, so that was like groundbreaking. Wow. Would you consider it the equivalent of network TV nowadays? Yeah, it is or? network television. It's network television. But it had like it, it was. It got up to like a forty-six rating. Like it was literally half of the households that had television. And you guys were the creators and the showrunners. Yeah, we're the showrunners. They didn't have that name. Yeah, there was. Uh, really Did four you have of a writer's writing. room? Yeah, okay. Four, four of us. So Tom only, he would do the research because he was he was a full-time journalist. So I would write the stories and then he would come in and kind of add his journalistic take on them. And then I would kick him to a, uh, sometimes I'd write it myself and sometimes I'd kick him to the screenwriter and he would 
di- dialogue them out. And that was kind of how we did them. And at this point, how old are you now? 26? Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah. that's incredible, it was great. man. That's crazy. That's incredible. It's crazy looking back. Like, it's it's hard. Did you realize it when you were in it? Did you realize, like, holy cow, I'm in Colombia making a TV show, doing 100 episodes. Like, you had just gotten there five years before and didn't you speak know, the language. It's, it's one of those things, like, you know, I was looking at your IMDb. Like, you've done a lot of acting, right? You've had a really good career. It's that's hard. nice to hear. No, but, but right. But, but here's the thing. It's like, when you're in the middle of it, you're just... Every day you're working, getting up and you know, doing your yeah, day. Yeah. And it's very hard to step outside of it. I didn't know what I was doing. Like it didn't, it was crazy. But then I'd go back to New York and, you know, all my friends were on Wall Street. And, yeah. And it was such a disconnect that I couldn't, like people would be like, really? They're like it was just too weird. And it actually was very hard to translate that back into a career in the U.S. Well, it's, it's funny for me right now because, you know, I'm sure we're going to get into uh, your your most recent film, uh, How to Be a Latin Lover. Yeah. And that's a big deal. And yet, so I know you've done big deal things, but I'm hearing this and I'm like, wait, you were 26 and you were <laughs> yeah. in Colombia and you yeah. had a hundred show, a hundred yeah. episodes of a Crazy. TV show. To me, that's like, I mean, you know, that just doesn't happen that often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially when you go down there, you you... You didn't know the language. You didn't even really know what you were necessarily doing down there. Nah, not at all. At first, you nah. know. And so I, I'm. I hear like a couple of different things. I hear one is like what you just said about you saw that there was no programming really for men, which reminds me of what your dad said, which is go down and if you know what. The you know Latinos the, the Latinos want, yeah. want that's yeah. going to be big in in the U.S. in the U.S. eventually and and you had that same kind of mind I guess as a producer to go like as a marketer really to go like oh there's a gap here there's a need yeah let's fill that because we could write about anything let's let's do that and then the other thing is just kind of that it seems like um, even just you showing up at the job with Tom and then like getting a job. It's like, well, how'd you do that? You know, you, yeah. you seem to just have a, maybe it goes back to you traveling with the, the, the guy from uh, the British guy. Yeah. Uh, where you just, you're not afraid of taking risks. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm like full of fear. That's the crazy part. I like, I can never, like I've done so many crazy things, and yet I don't think I was like, eh, nah, no sweat. Like I was often shitting my pants in some of the situations I put myself in, but uh, you know, it was it was addictive. You know, the and and so getting into that was it, that was bizarre. I mean, it was a bizarre, and you couldn't have done it like today. You couldn't do it like the Colombian television industry. Uh, all over Latin America is so organized now. Like you couldn't just go in there and be like some, you know, but at the time there's no internet. Like this is a major, you know, we started seeing the internet in like 96. So there was to be a foreigner there to them, it was exotic and it was interesting. And you're coming from the United States. So I had taken one course with Robert McGee and it was like the the (laughs) woman from that, from Sempro happened to know who Robert McGee was. And that somehow had a cachet, but uh, Robert McKee, by the way, yeah, Robert McKee, (laughs) that's right. But you know, uh, it was, yeah, it was crazy. That is, I mean, that that's, I love that story. 
I yeah. love, now, so so you do that, did that open tons of doors or were you kind of like a, were you kind of like a player in that world down there now after this? Like, I, just I mean, it sounds like it's a pretty, I mean, I know you're, you're not yeah, going to say I, that, but like, did all of a sudden people knew who you were, yeah, they knew no, the show. Definitely. And I was, I was getting interviewed on like, so I get to live all the fantasies, right? Cause yeah. you know, I've won about 150,000 Oscars at this point. Cause I've. <laughs> fantasized about it so many times but you know i get to live some of those fantasies like you know you're surrounded by very attractive women and there's a lot of parties and you're getting interviewed and like it was on a very tiny scale but i got i was 26 like i was yeah you were inside the time of my life yeah um there was in the middle of all this though there was a huge tragedy tom and i this is actually a crazy story too we had sold a new show tom was a was a uh, um, a journalist from the time when he moved to Columbia, you know, he, he was friends with Hunter S. Thompson. He moves down to Columbia. He had the craziest stories. In fact, you know, Rolling Stone used to print like the 10 best drug stories of the year every year. And Tom was one of them. I, I think it was like <laughs> 73 because he got busted by this cop buying pot in Bogota. And he was so mad that he called the cop up and said, hey, I'll buy that pot back from you. And the guy and just come to my apartment. And when he showed up in his apartment, he had called another cop. And that cop busted this cop. And he had to go into hiding. Like, they were going to kill him. So wow. that made its way into Rolling Stone magazine. But he was a crazy guy. And every night we were writing, he would come to my house around 9 o'clock to check over every like the stories on Fuego Verde. We, he would write for a while, and then we would sit back and roll a spleef and talk about life. And normally, he would tell me some crazy story about his life. By the way, in my office, I have a photo of him and myself from the opening, uh, the premiere of that show is hanging above my desk. And along with, El, he, he, I said, said he wrote the, a column in El Tiempo every Sunday. And when he died, I wrote his last column. And it's framed, a photo of him and... That column. So we had, he keep, kept telling me these stories. And I said, we got to do a show about your life. It's crazy. And so we had this idea. It was called Corresponsal, which means foreign correspondent. And it was about this American who moves to Colombia. And it was his life, but only told in like historically really important moments. So you would catch up with him during a moment in 68 when the first guerrilla movement started and he was covering it. And that might be five episodes. And it was a love story. And he, he was in love with this Colombian journalist. And like after the five episodes, you would jump to the next. It was like when Harry met Sally, you jump to a, another part of a moment in their lives five years later when another historic event was starting to take place and he was covering it and he had to catch up with his life. And it was sort of- That like sounds a, awesome. It was did, awesome. Did you ever make that? So we pitched it and we, um, we pitched to a bunch of places. We go to this party together with his wife. And at this, it was a TV party. And at the party, we run into the woman who runs that production company. It wasn't, they weren't production companies. They, the way it worked in Columbia at that time is like production companies would own like a slot. Like they would have the 8.30 slot on Thursdays on one of the two channels. And they could program with whatever they wanted. And they would have to commercialize it themselves and they would make money on it. So they owned a prime slot and they said, guess what? We're buying your show. And Tom, who had really basically quit drinking, had a few drinks that night. He, he was getting ready to leave. He says, you want to come back with me? I was like, nope, I'm going to stay here. I was, there was a lady friend. I was, and he drove off the side of a bridge with his wife and died instantly. 
So, oh my, and this God, was in like, man. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it, was, it was a long time ago. I mean, but yeah, but I only knew him like, I don't know, maybe three years, but he's still like, I mean, like, like I said, like I have a photo of him behind my desk. Well, just the way guy. you were talking about him, and then you, you know, you said a couple of minutes ago after he died, you know, you you wrote his last column. So obviously, spoiler alert there. But the way you were talking about him the whole time, I mean, he's obviously very alive yeah. to you. I, I, I had no idea until you said that a couple of minutes ago. But I'm sorry, just because it's just he's so amazing, tragic, he was, and he was amazing. And, and it was crazy because and that it happened that night. They literally like told you that night, and like. I, or, I got a call whatever. at five in the morning from an emerald. This is a, I'm not sure if he was killed. All right. Like if someone drove him off the side of the road because the guy who called me was actually an emerald miner who had been assigned to keep an eye on us while we were writing the show because um, the the warlord who we were sort of writing the show about wanted somebody close. And this guy, I guess, wanted to be an actor. I put him in a couple episodes of the show, but he would call me every once in a while. And he was a hitman for the, but he would tell me stories and like, yeah. and he was sort of there to help me, but he was really keeping an eye on me. And he was the guy who called me at five in the morning. And about a year ago, I woke up at like two in the morning. I was like, oh my God, I think that guy might've had something to do with this. Like, why did he know? I still don't know to this day. So it was crazy. That's a whole, like we can spend huh. hours talking yeah. about that. yeah. So that show was at that point when you were at that party that night. That was when that that network said we want to buy your show. Literally, buy, that, they wanted to buy the new show about his the life, new show about his died. life that night. Yeah, they told you that. Yep, and he, he drank. left that party where he yeah. found, he drank a little more because of that, like yeah. kind of celebrating yep. and left and died. Wow, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Holy. So we we ended up writing the first five episodes of that show and never making it. Um, I sold a couple more shows. Uh, I had another show on the air, and then I wrote a feature film called Golpe de Estadio with this French friend of mine, who's also to, like you should do a podcast with that guy because he's amazing. He was uh, is he, he here? Is he, he no? He yeah. lives in Cartagena. He runs a hotel in the old city now. But he was uh, he was basically when I met him, he was like Indiana Jones. He was. He was pulling gold out of the uh, out of the land, you know, like old Colombian, uh, really, yeah, pre-Columbian art. But he wanted to be a, a writer, and he had written a book when he was young, and he wanted to write television. And I became friends with him. I had interviewed him as a journalist, and so I, I ended up writing a couple episodes of Fuego Verde with him. And then um, he says, "I got this idea for a movie, you know, about." the police and the guerrilla fighting over uh, oil somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and they want to make a truce to watch the World Cup games. And this was, the movie would take place in 1993, uh, and the World Cup in 94, Colombia qualifies. That's the year Andres Escobar is killed after this the self-goal, if you remember that kind of big scandal. But they qualified yeah. for the World Cup. It was the first time, I think, maybe ever, if not in years. And they qualified beating Argentina 5-0. It was one of the biggest games. So we wrote this whole movie about the guerrilla and police deciding to make a truce behind the backs of their superiors because they want to watch the games. And each one of them has a television set. They're in the middle of nowhere. and But they don't trust each other. And 
one breaks the other's television set and they're pissed. So they go and tack their television set. And meanwhile, they keep the games keep progressing and you're seeing little clips of the games as you go. And eventually neither of them has a working television set. They're about to play Argentina. The, the guy who owns the brothel comes up with an idea. He's like, maybe if we get the two sets together and we get your technicians from both sides, you can get one working television set, which they do. And they pop it up in the church, uh, the television set, and they watch the game where where they beat Argentina 5-0. The gorilla and the police are all on the same side. Yeah. And it, we, this, we made this, you know, normally when you make anything which is a political satire, even if it's as kind of light as this is, you're not doing it in the middle of the war. But they were in the middle of the war when we made that movie. And so it was a really... So we, we we so we wrote the script and I, I I had two series on the air at the time and and I yeah you, you, when you're like twenty eight like the brain power is a lot more, I can't do that today yeah. but you know and I said to Claude I was like because he had had such a charmed life I was like I'll write that with you because he told me about it one night when we were in our kitchen after we'd been writing Fuego Red right? and I was like I will figure out how we can write this because you have such a charmed life somehow we will make it because at the time there was. They were making one or two movies a year. So how, where do you get that made? And there yeah. was one director named Sergio Cabrera. And I am I just talked to him two weeks ago. And we're trying to make another movie together. He's an amazing director. Um, and so we pitched it to him. He bought the script. The World Cup was coming up, the 98 World Cup. So the, it it they used that as momentum to get the movie greenlit. Uh, and we shot it in 1998. What was the, what was the budget? Uh-huh. About three million, which was huge at that yeah. time for Colombia, um, and it was an Italian, Spanish, Colombian co-production, and you know it's it, it's a I love that movie. It's a it's a pretty flawed film. You can't find it anywhere. Yeah. It was partially fine. Do you have a copy of it? We gotta. Do I a do have screen. A copy. We gotta do a screening of it. Yeah, it, it's like a fifth generation copy, but it's like VHS. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> transferred to a DVD. <laughs> But it it was a great it was a great movie. But the guy who financed it, nobody knows where his money came from. One of the guys, and he, uh, I went to his office because about oh, two weeks before we were supposed to shoot, there's this producer. He's still out there, but I, his name's name Sandra Silvestri, and he's a Roman producer, and he's just a scoundrel. I mean, a very charming scoundrel. But and he uh, he said. Uh, you, uh, I said, Sandra, you're about to shoot this movie and you haven't paid us for the script yet. And so he sort of looks at me as a tear is rolling down his eyes. He's like, I don't know if, you know, I was like, you gotta, if you're not paying us, I don't know how you're getting, you're, you're shooting. And so he's like, the next day I get a call. He's like, go to the financier's office. So we go to this office in the middle of like the nicest part of Bogota in this beautiful office building, walk into the office, middle of the day, there's desks everywhere, phones, and there's no one there. No one's ever worked there. And there's one light on in the back. And I walk to the back, and he's sitting there with the lights on. Uh, he's the only guy, clearly, who's ever been in this office. And there's a diploma from Georgetown University hanging behind him. And he opens up a drawer, and it's full of $100 bills. And he pulls out $15,000 and clunks <laughs> it on the table and goes, there you go, now you're paid, sign this. So Wow. 
we like, and he owns the movie. And so the movie's never been sold. It's like, it's just in sort of purgatory. Like it had, you can watch it on Colombian television. You can see it in Spain, but it'll never get sold to Netflix. It'll so, but, but did it have a theatrical release yeah, there? It did incredibly well. It did. It's still one of the highest grossing movies of all time, but like, you can't find it. Cause they, they, the guy, I don't know what he did. I don't know if he just didn't care, but he just, they never sold it. They don't have, you know, so it's a mess. That's so crazy. I know it's so crazy. It's so crazy. And what? And what were, were you? Uh, were you considered writer and producer on that? No, I just I was a co-writer. So Claude and I wrote this the first draft. Then Sergio brought in another writer to kind of it was like 160 pages, and he cut it down. This guy named Ramon Jimeno, and then we did some more work on it, and then he brought in another guy. Um, named Umberto uh, Dordado, who's an amazing writer who did a lot of work on it. So we, we, we had the original story and we were one of like four or five writers on the final draft. But it was my first feature. And I, yeah. you know, I'd made the promise to myself I would write a feature before I hit 30 and I was 29 when it came out. That, that is really cool. Uh, yeah, That's, it was fun. So, so that happens. That's, um, you're now late 90s. Yeah. Um, and by the way, the the backdrop of the '90s, if you've ever seen Narcos, the first season, was like the hyper violence. I mean, it was yeah. a crazy time to live there—the highest murder rate in the world and the highest kidnapping rate in the world. Um, wow. So, and by the time we got to that movie, it was just getting too crazy. Sergio, the director, had run for the Senate, and he was getting death threats, and it was so ugly. It just felt like you. It was time to go. It's time to get out. It was like I, so. Where do you go from there? Where do you end up? Well, that was so. I didn't know where to go from there. I didn't have a lot of money. I actually invested it all in a company that went broke, and so I. My dad was living in London. I went to stay with him. Well, that, actually, that's a question. So you had that show that went a hundred episodes. Did you guys make money? On yeah, that, we made did, great money. You I did just, make money. I had and too much just, fun and I was stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you go, so you're leaving, your dad's in London, yeah. London. Um, you end up going there. Yeah. Went there, stayed there for about eight months, nine months. I had a company with Sergio, the director of Golden Estadio that we had just formed. And I was writing a business plan to raise money to make movies for the Hispanic market. Um, never finished the business plan. Um, but I would go to my dad's office because my dad was working there and I would go to his office. He gave me a little office next to him. And uh, I would work on this business plan and show it to him. And then I traveled around Europe and just kind of decompressed. And it was really interesting because it was so tense to live in Colombia in that time. And I remember my dad lived in Wimbledon, which is, you know, the safest neighborhood you could imagine and I remember getting off the train and I was walking home and all of a sudden I went oh I'm okay and this like fear that there's something I realized that I had this alertness this that I was constantly aware of my surroundings in a way that and it hadn't switched off yet and then there was just this moment where I'm like, oh, I'm okay. Everything's okay. Like, nothing's going to happen right now. And I had been carrying that with me for, you know, nine years. Do you think you even realized it when you were in Colombia? I it didn't. Just... I didn't realize it until that moment until in that Wimbledon, moment. Yeah. walking down the road. 
And then I went, well, God, my mom, because my poor mom was like, you know, in the 90s, all you read on the front page of any newspaper was another car bomb, yeah. another politician. And where was your mom? Was she back She's in, in Philadelphia? She's in Philadelphia. Yeah. And she just kind of stormed the whole thing, you know, weathered the whole thing. But so, yeah, I went. So I was in Wimbledon. I wrote this business plan. Didn't work. And then I was like, what am I going to do? So I applied to film school. That's when I went to film school. And yeah. where did you go to school? Columbia University. Columbia. Yeah. So you went Just, back to New York. Yeah, I went to Columbia, but different spelling. <laughs> different Columbia, yeah. But the, uh, the What year were you at Columbia? I was there from 2001 to 2004. So, so I, huh. I, was, I looked at USC, UCLA, AFI, NYU, and Columbia, top five film schools. I went to Columbia for one very important reason. You didn't have to take the GREs. <laughs> that was it. It was the only one of the top five. So I only applied there. And I had applied there like eight years early and didn't get in. But, you know, now I had a movie under my belt. I could tell. Well, like, that's, I'm, I'm just thinking um, the reason I asked what year, because when I first went to New York City, that was January 1st of 95. Yeah. And I used to scour through backstage looking for, you know. Yeah. Gigs. Like gigs, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, they were like, you know, terrible plays that yeah. were no pay in black box theater, yeah. or they were uh, student films. Yeah. It was either like SVA, which was School of Visual yeah. Arts, or Columbia. I ended up doing, uh, I did a couple of things with Columbia. You remember uh, the director's films. No, I did this thing called, so I can't remember, I, I can't believe I remember this, Trader Lamb, it was called. And it was actually like a decent little production. Yeah. We shot the whole thing. And then I remember, like back then, you were always like, "Can I get some? Can I get some tape for my reel?" Yeah. Like that's like all yeah. it was all about. Like I, I want to build up my reel. Yeah. And and I we had actually a good experience, and they seemed like they knew what they're doing. And then like they were like, "Yeah, we never finished it," or they ne like they just ne and wow. I never saw it. You know, it was like uh, I never saw it. Yeah. And, and so hearing that you did all of this stuff and then went back there. Now that's a little bit later. So at that point, I was a little further along. I wasn't, you know, doing the whole backstage thing at that point. But I'm, I'm thinking when I was looking through backstage, it, it wasn't like dudes that had, you know, yeah. films that were theatrical releases already, right. and they went back. So when you went back to school, were you kind of like one of the more seasoned veterans there? Yeah, or were there a lot of, of people I was older like you? than yeah. most people. I wasn't the oldest. I, you know, I was, but I skewed a little older than most of my colleagues. And, you know, I mean, there were a couple of kids who had done a feature at that point, but I, Fuego Verde was on the air in New York when I was there on Telemundo. And, and, uh, that's pretty Gold Pistol cool. played at the Lincoln Center my second year. And they took all the first year students to see it, which I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. Like, yeah, yeah I don't think that's encouraging, you know? But, uh, so it was, it was, uh, it was a weird time. But what I realized very quickly is I knew nothing. Like I had, it was all gut and instinct. And so I actually felt like film school was so much better for me because I had done it and I had understood some of, I, I felt like I knew what I needed to learn and I knew what I didn't need to learn. Yeah. And, and I, was, what did you need to learn? What was it? And well, what did you not need? More importantly, what did you not need to learn? I, first of all, like I became a producing concentrate right away because you know, you had to declare a concentration in your second year. But I was like, I remember the first week I was there, I was like, what am I going to, am I going to write, direct, or produce? And I asked producers, the producing students that were about to graduate, there's this thing where you could ask, I said, 
if well, I got to go back because when the guy who produced Golpe Stadio was this Italian guy, Sandro Silvestri. And after that, when I was living in Europe, he hired me to write another screenplay for Ohanio, and I flew to Rome to see him. And I would go to his office every day and pitch him ideas on this project. And it was, looking back as a producer now, like, this was the worst way you could ever get it. Like, we were going to crack the story while I was in Rome for a week. It was just crazy. But, so I, every day I would go to his office and we would talk for a little while and then we'd go to lunch. And he bought me lunch the first day. The next four days he made me pay. And he was a 300-pound man, and he rode a motorcycle, and he would make me ride the motorcycle. <laughs> and he had, he had, a, he had a, a helmet box on the back. To, to, so he was this wide. He was huge. <laughs> and the space between his butt and the helmet box was so narrow that I couldn't open my legs enough to get between them. <laughs> so I sat on the helmet box. And this is a true story. We're driving down the streets of Rome. I'm sitting on the helmet box. So I'm like two feet above him, a 300-pound man on a motorcycle. And I swear this happened. We stopped at a light, and there were a bunch of Japanese tourists. And they look over, and they start taking pictures. And it had to be the weirdest fucking thing. And so, but so we go out to, we, uh, we go out to lunch every day and I keep telling him my, my ideas and he hates everything. And at the end of that trip, I went, why does this asshole get to decide what we're going to make? Right. Why, why, what makes, and he had told me his life story and he wasn't that accomplished as a producer. Yeah. So I was like, w- because he cl- declared himself a producer, my, he has some dominion over my ideas. And I was like, well, then I'd rather be him. I always said I'd rather be an asshole than work for one, right? Yeah. So I was like, I want to become a producer. So when I went to Columbia, that, I was sort of focused on that. And I, the first week, I remember asking a producing concentrator who was about to graduate, who's gone on to do some interesting stuff. I said, do you think you could produce a movie when you walk out of uh, Columbia? She, she said, Absolutely. You couldn't really direct a movie right out of Columbia. You couldn't write a, you couldn't sell a script right out of Columbia, but you could produce a movie, which is what I, so I, I was certain at that point that I wanted to do that because I wanted to make money, um, and, and sustain myself. And, you know, I secretly harbored desire still to direct and I'm actually trying to do that now. But, you know, the, the, I think. I'll tell you what I knew not to do in film school because I I feel like I learned it with everybody. And I had a policy, like, no matter whether I thought I knew more than the teacher, and and a lot of the kids would be like, you know, none of us were kids, but, like, felt like we knew more than the teachers did. I was like, there's got to, just for for the the semester that I'm with them, whatever they're teaching me, I'm going to buy into it and try to take at least one thing away from it. And so, but the thing that I did know not to do this was the important thing about going to film school at that age is like there was no like I didn't I wasn't worried about whether I was popular I didn't I didn't have to hang and I had great friends coming out I'm still very close to them but like it wasn't I wasn't sucked up into this like social thing and there was so much competitiveness and I was extremely competitive but not in the sense of like it wasn't I didn't get bogged down by it. And I saw that happening all the time. Like, there's a lot of people complaining about what was fair and not fair and who got the scholarships and who didn't. And it just, be, it was very political and I just didn't do any of that. And I was like, I became really close to all the professors. I'm still close to them. Um, and I just sucked. At, I, like, I didn't give a shit. Like, I would be the guy who would ask 50 questions. And because if, you know, that, that's what I was there for. Like, I, 
Yeah, you didn't care what anybody else was thinking. Everything. Like, oh, this guy's a pain in the ass. You don't care because you're I like, don't I'm, care. I'm going to get out of it what I want to get out of it. Yeah. And what I'm paying to get out of this. Yeah. And I produced a feature while I was in uh, it's, uh, the first While you were still there. Yeah. And it was my, you had to do two, you had to do three uh, films while you were there. By the way, after I did that, they prohibited feature producing because you had all the equipment and you had your students. To, so it, it was you were totally taking advantage of the system. I shot all over Columbia University because yeah. you could do that. And they give you free insurance, which is expensive. So we could make the movie very cheaply. But it was part of my graduation. Um, so I, you know, I was moving. What was fast. that movie called? And is that it- was called Confess. I don't know where it is now. I saw it on Showtime not that long ago. Um, you're proud of it still. I am proud of it. Like yeah. actually I went back and watched it. That's a movie that like really, it was about a guy who starts kidnapping people and making them confess on the internet and he posts their confessions. This is before YouTube. Like, you know, yeah. no, that you, people weren't really posting videos at that point like that. And so it was, it was pretty amazing. And he didn't really have a political bent. He was just pissed, but he sort of finds it along the way as he goes. And it was Did you write it as well? Or no? I didn't. We developed it. We definitely spent a lot of time with the writer-director, a guy named Stefan Schaefer, who's a really talented guy. Um, but uh, I produced it with this guy, John Stern, who was my partner. We started this company together. And John's now a huge TV producer here in L.A. I was just going to say, I know that. Abominable name. Pictures. He just did... Um, What's it called? It's the story of National Lampoon that was on Netflix. But he he does like Wet Hot American Summer, the oh, series okay. and stuff. Yeah, like uh, he's a great guy. He's a close friend still as well. So you go there. That's a two year program. It's a, it's a, a three it's two, year program. two years of classes, and then you have like one to three years of this period where you can still get loans. And a lot of people live in that limbo and sort of are trying to figure out their next move. And right. like I was thirty when I got I was thirty when I got to school. So I knew I had to be working. So I was, I had, I was making money in my second year. And by the time I was going to my third year, I was making enough to live on without student loans. And I graduated at the end of that third year. Yeah. Um, did you stay in New York for a while? I or stayed in New York, to- started this company. We, 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 we opened, we had an office at the Green Street Film Center. You remember that place down on? Yeah, way in Tribeca. Way down, yeah. Yeah, all the producers, not all of them, but a lot of them, like uh, the independent producers all had, and Naked Angels was there. There was yeah. a bunch of little. Yeah. And I think that's where I, where I know it uh, from, from Naked Angels, I think. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? The guy who started that. Who Tuesdays got, at nine, they used to do this thing for, I don't, I don't know if it was down there or it was. Anyway, it was like yeah, actors would get together and read scripts and, you know, you'd go there and they'd like assign you. At Naked Angels or at... Google yeah, Street Naked Film Angels, Film. I think they I think they were the ones that started it, um, right. this thing called Tuesdays at Nine. Now they have it out in L.A. I haven't been to it in years. But in New York, went a couple of times, it was just like you, you would show up and they'd be like, you know, read this part. And yeah. you're like you're reading a part that you're totally wrong right, for, cold. but you were yeah. just like, oh, That's you know, <laughs> so-and-so is going to be here. Like you thought that... Yeah, I don't know. It was it was it was good. It was really for writers to hear their work. But well, you know, anyway, that first year I was in New York, I got to put I put I wrote a screenplay which was terrible, but I got a good friend of mine, Scott Cohen. You ever know Scott from? New yeah, York? he actually did a um, movie called Knots that a guy from my high school, uh, this guy Dan Abrams, um, uh-huh. produced with uh, John Stamos and. Uh, 
And yeah, he was he was on another show with a yeah yeah. So Scotty was he's the, a New York actor. He was yeah, yeah. he was John Turturro's stand-in on uh, Mac. So I would drive him to set every day, and we became great friends. And uh, so I wrote the screenplay, and I said, "Will you cast it for me?" And he cast it with all his friends, amongst them Philip Seymour Hoffman, who was a close friend of his, who who read back way back when. May he rest in peace. And yeah. you know, I knew him a little back then, and. It was amazing because one thing I always tell actors was I would I remember asking him, like, how are you doing? He's like, yeah, I just did this movie, Son of a Woman. It was really nice to do something uh, where I'm playing a high school student because I know it's the last time I'm ever going to be able to do a role like that. And he said in a way, I was like, he was the only actor I ever met during that time, including all of Scott's friends, uh, who was so confident in his career that he didn't speak about it. Like, yeah, I was, I was lucky to get that role. Like, it, there was no... There was no fear in it. He knew then, and he was just starting out. Really, that he, it was all coming his way. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, um, what a great actor, and he's great in that movie. I yeah. mean, I remember seeing that movie because um, Chris O'Donnell went to BC. He yeah. was uh, two he years ahead of me. Somewhere. Yeah, yeah, he actually lives very close. He, um, but at the time, like I, I remember. You know, that was such a big deal, that movie. And, of course. And, and I remember not, I didn't know who Philip Seymour Hoffman was at the time. I just remember right. going like, oh, that guy's yeah. really. I know, he stood out. He's and it got wasn't like a big a, role. Yeah. Yeah, he was just a dicky yeah. boarding school kind of, prep school kind of kid. Yeah. yeah, which he kind of reprised a little bit in um, The Talented Mr. Ripley. He had a little bit of that yeah, same yeah. kind of. He was thing. amazing. And I would bump yeah, into amazing. him every once in a while. He'd never remember my name, but he'd be like, oh, yeah, you're Scotty Cohen's friend. Yeah. Yeah, he was he was an amazing guy. Um anyway, so so you you So we start this company, uh John and I at, right right at while I'm going into my third year of film school. And we we scraped together the dough. My dad lent me a little money so we could have an office to try to legitimize ourselves. Like I was always about like legitimize first then start making stuff, right? It's like yeah. you know, you are a producer if you say you are a producer. Um, and, and do you still hold to that? Absolutely. And you, and you still yeah. tell people fake it till you make it. You yeah. got, you have to, because there's no, there's no system to get you there. So you have to kind of get ahead of yourself, you know, and yeah. just throw yourself into things. You don't know what you're doing. And so in that year we produced our, our, that, the one feature and a bunch of little, little things. We did a lot of stuff for Columbia university. That was their 250th anniversary. Um, so we, they hired me to do things for them. And uh, and then we did some commercials, low-budget low commercials and music videos, and we scraped by. And and this is another great story. Talk about, like, the 10,000 no's. This is one of the most amazing. I got to tell this one as well as I can. So we get this script. It's called um, Weightless. I forgot the writer-director's name. But she had done a movie prior called Rain, which Martin Scorsese had executive produced. She went to NYU and she became like his, uh, like protege at NYU and she had won some award. And so he was going to executive produce this movie Weightless. So the script came into us with Scorsese attached. Huh. And it was a really smart idea. It was about these two best friends that are both overweight. One goes away to uh, fat camp and comes back skinny. And they go to high school, but there's a problem at the high school, and they all get transferred to another school. And she, the skinny girl, shoots up the social ladder quickly, leaving the girl who was the cooler of the two still in this sort of 
you know, overweight universe that she lives in and she spirals into insanity. And it was a comedy that goes really dark and it was really a smart idea. The script never quite worked, but we got Scorsese to, I wish I still had this, to talk, to, to like, we went and shot him talking about her. And if you've ever seen his his documentaries about filmmaking, like he did one about Italian cinema, and my journey through Italian cinema, and he did one about American cinema, they're amazing. Yeah, I think I have something up there that's, uh, it's like Visions of Light or something. That's a different or, or is that the different, that's not, yeah, that's or he, not, he may be, do, he's in one of those he could be. DVDs. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, so... He's just very articulate. He has a way of talking about, and he talked about her in the same way he would talk about these movies that influenced him as a kid. And we got him talking about it. We cut this whole thing together and we went out and we raised $2 million in six months in cash, which is like, it's so hard to do. And I thought it was a long time. I was like, this take, this took too long. Like I thought Scorsese yeah. would blow doors open. And he was also making phone calls for us. He called uh, one of the Culkin, which, which one's the one who's working a lot now? I forgot his name. Kieran Culkin? Kieran, or, yeah. yeah. I think it was There's Kieran. Macaulay and it's Kieran. Kieran's Kieran, the one that was... Yeah, and like, Kieran uh, didn't return his call. Like, I was like... Wait, didn't, uh, didn't return Scorsese's, Scorsese's call? Call? Yeah. So I, what? That, yeah. So at that point, I was like... <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah, it, it was bizarre. And, and that's when I realized how hard it is, really. It's like, you know, he wasn't directing it, but still, he just didn't return the call. Maybe he didn't get the call. I don't know, but they, he didn't return it. Wow. So... So anyway, so we... Uh, Even Scorsese's... Well, you know, maybe because <laughs> he called him at home and he thought it was a crank call. I don't know. That's crazy. Um, but we... Um, so we raised the $2 million. And one was this private equity guy that my dad, like, met him on a plane or something. He's like, I met this Indian guy and he's he's got some money. And he was real. And then the other guy was this Wall Street guy who said he had the money lied to us, signed a contract. Like we were, and we, we got to a point where we had to start hiring lawyers. And so we hire our lawyers to do all the paperwork and it's a lot of, it's expensive because it's a lot of stuff. Expensive is like 15 grand, but when you're broke, yeah. it's, it's a lot of dough. So we get this lawyer and then we find out that one of the guys is just lying. He's like, well, I thought that this thing was going to come through and it had He literally yet. just lied. He just lied. And so the other million dollars <laughs> went away. He was lying about a million dollars. He was yeah. saying he was going to give you and a million dollars. he signed a dollars. contract. He signed a contract. Yeah. And he just didn't have it. And uh, so... What's the MO there? He's just thinking, that's ah, not going to get done anyway. He, so thought, just he had a guy he thought who he said could... was gonna, this big deal was going to come through and he was going to be so flushed in cash that a million dollars was just like a drop in the bucket. And the deal didn't go through. Yeah. So, so we, so we're, we're, so... I was so depressed and I would, I was dating this woman at the time who was uh, very into anything that could not be proven scientifically, she believed in it. Like anything, <laughs> crystals, anything mystic, she, she could heal you with the energy of aliens. Like needless to say, she was very attractive. So I guess she was awesome. I loved her, but she was a little nutty. Yeah. And her mom was that way too. Like her mom believed in all this crazy stuff too. Um, she, they're both incredibly smart women to, to be, they just, I don't know, they, they, whatever. Any, so, and I always kind of teased her about it and she didn't really care. So I'm at work one day and I'm, I really can't get out of bed. And, and she calls me and says, I have this friend named Eterna, um, who, um, she, God speaks through her. I was like, okay. 
And I was telling her about your problem. Like, sweet woman. Like, she was like trying to help me. So she yeah. talks to her turner about this. Yeah. She's like, I'm, I, I'm just trying to, she, uh, you know, I was talking to her about you and God spoke. And I said, and what, I was so broken. <laughs> I was like, she, I, I said, she said, would you speak to her? And I said, she said, I don't want to tell you what she said. Or I, mean, I don't think she told her. It's like, she needs to talk to you directly. Will you speak to her? And I was like, sure. Like I, there was not, it wasn't coming from anywhere else. Right, like right. I literally could not get up every day. I felt like my career was over. Cause I told everyone I was making a movie with cards. Like it was so, it was crushing me. Like it was embarrassing. It was, um, it, you know, I got so ahead of it and then my ego was so tied up in it and I was ashamed that I had gotten into this situation. And how old were you at that? That, that, that was, was 33. 33, okay. So, and I was just, I was broke and depressed and- So you go speak to this- No, I didn't speak to her. She was okay. going to call me on, on my cell phone okay. and I forgot about it. And it's like seven o'clock at night on a Thursday and I'm staring at my computer screen, unable to work and the phone rings and it's a turn and the first thing I noticed was like, Eterna, you know, when people are incredibly intelligent, there's an articulation in the way they speak that's very attractive. And you like immediately know, like just the way they express themselves out. She was immediately, and she said, look, I know you're probably a very rational thinking person. And you get a call from somebody named Eterna and you probably think I'm crazy. She said, I, just so you know, I was a, I worked on Wall Street, Forbes, produces a list of the 50 most high, highest, I don't know if it's the most powerful or, you know, highest earner, female earners on Wall Street. I was on that list every year. Um, I made more money than I know what to do with. And I was so unhappy that I decided to become a psychologist. So I studied and I became a psychologist and I started my practice and I would sit with my clients and I started hearing this voice. I know it sounds crazy, but I started hearing this voice. At first, I didn't know what it was. And then I realized it was God. And God was speaking to me. And I would, at first I would ignore it because I thought I was crazy. But after a while, I started listening and I realized that God was communicating through me to these people. And so I started expressing what God was telling me and it changed their lives. So I closed my practice and I decided I'm just going to live my life. And when God needs me, he'll let me know. And your girlfriend's mother was on the phone talking and he spoke to me. <laughs> so, so I, I'm, I'm so. I mean, broke. I'm hooked <laughs> right now. I'm I, so broken at this point that I go, okay, I'm ready. And she said, "You are holding on so tightly right now that you're about to miss the opportunity of your lifetime because you can't see it. You have to let go." And I, you know, listen. If my dad had called me and said, "Ben," You got to let go. You got to move on. I would have been like, fuck you, man. You don't know what I'm going through right now. Yeah, yeah. But because it came through the weirdest of circumstances, and it was actually incredibly sound advice, no matter where it was coming from. But because of that, it like the weight of the world lifted in that moment. And I went home that night and I said to my girl, I was like, we're going out to dinner. I had no money. Took her out to dinner. We went to a movie, and like I just started living again. But see, this is interesting to come up here because, um, you know, I'm hearing the story, and I'm hearing like the 
the you know the east coast skepticism and cynicism and i'm you know there with you too i'm gonna eterna called and all this stuff (laughs) but you know what i don't know man i there there have been there have been situations like that for me as well maybe not that specifically but i i don't know i mean it's it's However, whatever, you, you know, you want to call it, people are listening, you know, it, it, it's God, it's the universe, it's the, you know, higher collective power. unconscious, yeah. it's the yeah. higher power. I I believe, and you know, that that's, people come into your life and they say something to you at, at one point that's, um, and the dime drops. And it sounds like it, you know, it, it. it Jugged you loose from your own, from yourself. You know, it's, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but I think Einstein, Einstein said, uh, you can see that everything in your life is a miracle or nothing in your life is a miracle. Like, those are the two choices. And it's true. Like, you know, if you choose to see the world that way, it, it's a better world to live in. I mean, you know, it's a perspective. Thing. And, and that's the other thing is like, you don't have to, I think I, I used to get into like trying to argue with people or prove a point or, you know, this is the way, it's like, in a way, it doesn't matter. It's like I don't, I don't care what you think or what someone else thinks. Or whatever. I know what what I yeah, what think and what I believe yeah. and what I, you know, and that is that's enough. That's it. If it if it's if it works for me and I believe it so, then it's so. Yeah. You know, and and for everyone. I you mean, know? you can't hold your child after they're born in your hands and that feeling and not believe that there's a higher power like that feeling is undeniable but you know at the time i wasn't willing to go to any of those places um but it still was so uh powerful but here's the the punchline to it all so a week later i had a palm pilot i think at that point you know oh yeah i had one of those with the stylus (laughs) (laughs) the palm three i think (laughs) and i was down the street at a coffee shop checking my email in the morning getting my coffee and i get an email from this guy hello ben my name is jim mcnamara uh and i um used to run a network called telemundo um i used to buy all your television shows from columbia and for the last year i've been looking for you i'm about to start a production company with a deal with lionsgate and i'd like to talk to you about it now if i if 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 that deal with martin scorsese was still working if it was still real i might have ignored it you know had i been so depressed that i couldn't get out of bed i might not have taken it seriously but i called him up and a month later he hired me as his head of production for a new company that was producing movies for um, Lionsgate. And one of the first things he did was call me and say, I'm flying to New York. There's a play on Broadway called Latino Logs. And there's this guy that you have to meet named Eugenio Derbez. That was 12 years ago. And that's that's your my boy. partner. Yeah. Yeah. So like, say it's his all, name with the pronunciation because I can't. Eugenio Derbez. I can't. I, <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. We can. We can. We said we're going to have him on here, but yeah. I, it's going to be embarrassing I told, if I, I can't. told him he's in. He's in. I, it was going to be embarrassing if I can't pronounce his name. <laughs> now, that's part of the charm is, is trying to pronounce it. Um, but anyway, so we started this company. We developed a bunch of movies. We made movies. We made Spanish language commercial movies for the U.S. market, 
And uh, some of them, we, we acquired a few. We made one called Ladron, Que Roba Ladron, which was uh, a Ocean's Eleven heist movie. Did you do these from New York or did you? I actually do- moved down to Miami. You moved down to Miami. Yeah. Okay. So and I was, that, I was and that's when you met Lucia down there. Exactly. Okay. I was in New York for a year and uh, while I was working for Jim. And then eventually I said to Jim, I think I need to go to LA to be more effective. And he goes, you're going to get eaten alive in LA. I don't know if he said exactly like that, but that's what he meant. He said, come to Miami. So I just want to get out of New York. So I moved to Miami. Uh, it wasn't like there was nothing going on there, but we were so close because we were flying to Colombia and Mexico and, yeah. you know, Argentina making movies all over Latin America. So that's the other thing I'm just thinking with you is like one, this, this thing to zig when everybody else is zagging, you know, you did it, you did it when you, uh, got out of St. Lawrence and you went down, you know, you went to New York, but then you went down to Colombia. So you kind of did your own thing. And you were in a small market. It wasn't a small market, but no, it, was it was a, a market, market that was like a wild west. Totally. And then now you go after after New York instead of going to L.A., which most people think yeah. is the logical step. Yeah. You go down there, and you're also it's it's interesting. Yeah. You kind of like built your brand in a in a kind of satellite market, which is smart in a way. You get to do more. You yeah, know, it sounds like you we, got, kind of got to we, do we more. Got to, I mean, I would say like when you're in Los Angeles, you spend more time sort of comparing yourself to others, scrambling for the resources that we're all scrambling for. When you're making movies anywhere else in the world, it's like you're all in it together. Like, how do you make a movie? It's so hard. Yeah. You know, and so it's a different feeling and you're not surrounded by people in the business. So you're not talking about the business. Yeah. So all those well, that, I always say that any, any in indie films that I've done in other, if you're in another town, I did a, a movie with a friend of mine in Kansas. We were in Lawrence, Kansas. And it's like, you know, getting locations there. People are like, Oh, you're shooting a movie. That's so yeah, yeah. cool. And, yeah, you know, they, man, and, you ever see that movie? The, the, oh yeah. 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 <laughs> there. And, but they're, yeah, they think that it's so great and they're letting you use their, you know, yeah. really cool restaurant for yeah. free. And, yeah. you know, if you try to do that in LA, people are like, get off my lawn, like, yeah. get out of here. Yeah. You know, cause everybody sure, it's has a, a script and everybody has a yeah. camera and, yeah. um, that that's so, okay. So you go down there, but this is a big gig you have. I mean, you're, yeah, you're it was big production. for me, you know, it was like, it was a small company, but it's big for me. And Jim, you know, Jim was the only other gringo that I knew that had worked in Spanish language television. He was the he was the CEO and president of Telemundo, which is huge. two networks. You yeah. know, it, so he was brought in, and his story is amazing. He was born in Panama, uh, spoke perfect Spanish. Um, he was a, go- a competitive golfer, and um, he thought he was going to go pro. He went to R- Rollins, which was a big golf school, and he cold calls most charming guy you'll ever meet like to to this day and he calls uh jack nichols cold jack nicholas not nicholson jack nicholas cold calls him and says hey and i think he was because he was a amateur like a pretty high level amateur golfer like it wasn't like i'm just joe schmo but you know i don't i don't know if he was number one at rollins but it was it was enough of a deal and he says hey would you play 18 holes with me and just tell me whether you think i can make it as a pro and he goes, he 
Jack Nichols, Nicholas says yes, and he goes and plays 18 holes with him. You know, he was a, probably the biggest athlete in the world yeah. at that point. And at the end of the 18 holes, he says, you're never going to make it, but you should become an agent. He's Jim is so charming that in the course of 18 holes, he had charmed Jack Nicholas into, and Jack Nicholas had started the first sports agency, AIG. So he said, call my office, tell him you need to come in. So the next Jim's like, holy shit, <laughs> like this is better than yeah. trying to go pro because he, you know, he knew he yeah. probably wasn't going to get that far. Yeah. So he calls AIG the next day. I'm like, sorry, we've never heard of you. And he's like, oh my God. So six months go by and he's like, you know, I'm just going to try one more time. And he calls up and the secretary's like, oh my God, I'm so glad you called. Jack was so mad because you called before you told us so we didn't know. And he's been so angry about what had happened to you. And he ends up becoming his agent, Jack Nichols's agent. And he starts packaging um, professional sports shows in Latin America, which is where he gets into television because he would do like, you know, they do like some big golf tournament in Brazil and he would sell it to NBC or whatever yeah. the, the TV rights. And so um, he became, the, so from there he went into television and he ends up working at this company called New World. And New World was, um, what's his name? Uh, oh my God, I'm going to forget his name. Um, he's like a, he was the the independent producer uh, who made all the B movies. Um, oh. Uh, it just came to me and went. John Carp. No, no, no. Oh, oh, you mean the one the that, like, that like yeah, yeah. Nicholson worked with? Yeah, exactly. Everybody worked with. Oh, uh, God. He's just, like uh, Roger Corman. <laughs> Roger Corman. So yeah. Roger Corman started New World, but he had sold it. And now it was like the biggest independent TV and film production company. And so when Jim started there, there was a guy named Harry Sloan who was the CEO. And John Feldheimer was there as, a, I think, president or whatever. Harry leaves. John Feldheimer becomes CEO. John Feldheimer is now the CEO of Lionsgate. So John leaves and Jim becomes the CEO of new of of New World and then when and in meanwhile John becomes the president of Sony Television Sony owns a minority or majority stake in Telemundo and it, they're bleeding money so Jim goes off becomes president of Universal TV and John calls him one day and says we need you to come in run Telemundo because you speak Spanish, it's a fire sale. Just try to get some value out of it, and then let's let's get rid of it. And he, Jim goes in, turns the channel around. He buys this Brazilian telenovela and dubs it to Spanish. becomes a huge hit. Turns the, the, the channel around and sells it to NBC for $3 billion. And I think oh it was the bi single biggest um, uh, profit they'd made on any sale and media. So, and he's the guy that came looking for you and he came looking for me. So, but when I, he was at Telemundo, I was like, who's this guy? Like I was, I was the gringo in the Spanish speaking, who's yeah. this guy? And he's, he's bigger than me, but he was buying my shows. And so all of a sudden I'm working for him and he's the greatest human being on the planet. Too. Wow. He sounds, no, he sounds like it. And that's such a great story for, listeners here to to hear that one is just like the, the the story of of him calling AIG and then saying no we never heard of you and then you go for six months thinking like oh so Jack Nicholas like lied to me and yeah, just like just put me on and whatever and then you know 
the, you know, the bad version of that story is he goes and, and jumps off a cliff and then like finds right. out, you know, yeah, right. luckily he called back again, yeah, yeah, you know, and yeah. you just, you just don't know, you, you know, you could sometimes like play it out in your head that like, oh, they're against me. They're against me. And you realize like, oh no, it's just like, it was an honest mistake. Yeah. And, you know? Yeah. But anyway, so he comes, he gets you. Now you guys are down in Miami. Yeah. And he, he like what Jim taught me was how to like, he taught me the charm, uh, the, you know, the charm offense. Like he's the most charm. And I, he, he taught me how to talk to actors. Cause he just had a way of like, when you're dealing with stars and like how to relate to them and connect to them quickly. And, um, you know, a lot about diplomacy. It was very, it was really hard because the deal at Lionsgate, he made it with John Feldheimer to make six movies, but we hadn't, he hadn't, made the deal with all the different presidents who run day to day that you needed to work with. And they didn't want to do the deal. So right. it was really hard to get things done. It was, and the company was, you know, it was just, it was just politics and they, you know, everyone's doing their own thing and they're not, they don't really care about these little Spanish language movies. Yeah. They didn't know how they were going to do. So we made a few of them and we just kind of, they, John Feldheimer, like one of the things about, I think, one of the reasons he's been so successful is that he's incredibly loyal to the people around him. So as he built, you know, John, what John did is he bought all these little companies that had these libraries of films and he put them all together and it became Lionsgate. And then you had enough assets and you could sort of take out loans against the movies and you'd sell the movies to, you know, license the movies to make more revenue. And so he started this little company off of that. And then they started the Saw franchise and then they had Tyler Perry and like those were their two big things. And then they did Crash and it won the Oscar and that was kind of the big game changer. And then on the TV side, you know, Mad Men, Weeds were kind of their early TV shows. Yeah. And they slowly built into this independent uh, studio. And they always, but John, like anybody he worked with from the early days, they're all still his friends and they all still work at Lionsgate. And I actually feel like that's why Lionsgate has been part of its success is like in a city where there isn't a lot of loyalty he was always loyal to his people and they're loyal to him. And he's been able to build that's like a nice place of trust. That's actually, that's, yeah, that's really great to hear. Yeah. You know, you like, you like to hear that. Um, Cause you're right. There's not, oftentimes there's not um, a ton of loyalty. And, so yeah. we, we made some movies. They didn't, we couldn't really prove the market at the time. Um, we, one movie that we were supposed to make that we developed, we put Eugenio in put Kate Del Castillo in. If you remember that whole Chapo scandal with Sean Penn, she's, she was the one that was sort of got tangled up in that thing um, unwittingly. And huh. so, but she was a huge star. We put the Los Tigres del Norte, we were a big group, put them in this movie. Uh, it was a woman I went to film school with named Patricia Regan, who's a great director. Lionsgate, we couldn't get it greenlit in time. Like they just couldn't greenlit it, light it. She had given us like a six month option to get it made. She's like, if, if you don't do that, I want to have a kid. So I want to go make this movie, then go have a kid. And she's like, I got to go. I have the f financing. I was like, come on, you don't have the fight. It's too hard to find finance. And she had the financing. And she went off and made it. She made it for $2 million. And it made like $20 million between the U.S. and Mexico, which was the first signs not only of the, of the potential of the Hispanic market, because I don't think they marketed right it's a great movie yeah but it also was the power of Eugenio their best he was a huge part of the success of that movie because he had this incredible audience 
but you just didn't know it. And that's one of the... So, yeah, where did he get... I mean, we don't have to go fully into it, but I, I am interested and I'm psyched that he's willing to come sit down with me. But wh- where was his um, audience from, the loyal audience? So, from- so he was a TV actor in Mexico and his mom was the biggest soap opera star, but he lived like... Like they didn't make any money, so he was he lived this like very humble kind of middle class Mexican life, and when he decided to become an actor, he had to start from zero. Like it didn't give him any breaks. So when he's like twenty five, he does it. He's he's the shyest guy and the humblest human. Like you will love him. Like you can't not love this guy. He's and he's genuinely that person. It's yeah. not it's not a thing he puts on. I've seen him in every situation imaginable. And he is the most decent human being I've ever met. Really. That's and cool. So, and he, at the age of 25, he did a comedy show. I don't know why he did it, but he did, he wasn't a comedian. He wasn't funny. He wasn't the class clown. He was like the shy and he wanted to do drama. And he did this, con- and he was amazing. He had like this internal clock. And his face, it's like, it's, it's a, if you look at his, there's something about his face, it's very funny. He has these huge expressive eyes. He's very internal. He understands that comedy comes from drama. It's not, doesn't come from being a goof. And so he immediately, like, everyone's like, oh my God, you're a comedic genius. And so he started doing comedies. And then he's like, the writing's terrible. The directing's terrible. So he ends up producing, writing, directing these comedies. And from the minute he starts doing that, they become incredibly successful. And... You, Televisa, where he was making all these shows, so, uh, puts all their shows on Univision. Univision was the number one network. And it's not, and now it sort of struggles to be number one. But at the time, like all the Spanish speakers in, in the U.S. watch Univision and they all loved Eugenio. And he ended up, you know, he would like host the Latin Grammys. And so he builds up this massive audience and has no idea how big it is, right? Huh. And, until he makes his movie instructions not included, and it, you know he made it for five, and it made a hundred million dollars between Mexico and the U.S. So it was a it was a big audience, and it was a big untapped audience, which yeah. is really the important part. Is like it, you know you're not recycling audiences that are going to other movies. These are audiences that don't ha- no one's making movies for them. Right now, when when you say he's writing. Uh, producing and directing his own films. Is he kind of his own TV shows? Is he kind of like uh, doing it in a Tyler Perry kind of way where he had his own little studio uh, or was he doing it for a deal? He was doing it for them. Okay. Yeah. If he was doing a Tyler Perry style, he wouldn't need to work right now. But uh, yeah, unfortunately he didn't own anything he ever made. Uh, so someone else, you know, a lot of other people got rich off of his Yeah, stuff. look, the, the, the intellectual rights laws in the U.S. are very protective of the creators, and Latin America, not at all. Uh. So, and, you know, no one's going to give that stuff away. So they don't have to, and they, they, all, they own it. And so he built, up, he built up this massive audience. He has this huge success. And so, but it, it, it takes a minute to get there. So I'm in Miami. We're making these movies. Um they're not, we're not doing that well. Oh, I, I forgot to mention. So there was a movie that I was developing while I was with my company in New York, which was called Centrifugal Films. It was a Spanish language thriller. So John Stern was my partner and I'd met him. His wife was a friend of mine. We had, we had, she was a PA on Mac. And wow, it all goes back to Totoro. Yeah. <laughs> and she got, she married this guy and 
we we got along really well. We decided to start this company. He had made like five features at this point, so he knew a lot more than I did. But he saw Golpe Estadio, and we sort of I said, well, look, I think the Latin market could be interesting. Well, so he's he all he wants to do is comedy, and all I want to do is like Spanish language or Latin themed, and. There comes this moment where he has a script called The Ten that David Wayne was directing, and I have this script called Padre Nuestro. And I don't want to do his movie. It wasn't that I didn't like it. I just, it wasn't appealing to me. Yeah. And he didn't do, want to do mine. And my movie was going to be directed by a film school st- student, friend of mine, who was kind of the best director in our class. And the script was amazing. Um, and so Jim comes in and offers me this job. I, I'm like, John, sorry, I got to take it. This is real. Mo-. Like I was making like 30 grand a year in New York City. Yeah. And, and now he's paying me 70 or whatever it was. I was like, I got to go. Yeah. I go off and make Padre Nuestro and he goes off and makes the 10. And we meet at Sundance that year, that next year. And he was, he, he was out of competition because it was a comedy. And we won the grand jury prize. That was the second feature I ever made. And wow. it's a amazing film. And Eugenio's in it because he was in New York film uh, doing Latino logs. And there was this little role, this kitchen role. And we wanted it in Mexico because all the, all the workers in the restaurants are Mexican. But none of the actors, Mexican actors, go to New York. They all go to L.A. And we couldn't afford to. We flew in the lead, who's this guy named Jesus Cho, who's amazing, who's in Overboard, actually. Uh, and... Um, and we flew in the two boys, but we couldn't fly in anyone else because it was a $500,000 budget. And so I called up Eugenio, who was on Broadway, and I was like, would you ever do a role in like a super low-budget arty movie? And he's like, yeah, because no one would ever give him a shot. Yeah. When I met him, I said to him, I said, after I saw, saw him on Broadway, and he was so funny, and I, and I met him, and he's so shy and quiet and, and has that thing that comedians have, that certain melancholy. Yeah. And I said to him, you want to do drama and nobody lets you do drama. And he goes, how did you know that? And so I offered him this drama and I was like, look, you're going to have to change in a van. Like this is, yeah, yeah. and he's like, I don't care. And he was like, you know, he went for it. And so he, he's in that movie. That was the first movie we did together. And you went and, to some, you won the grand jury prize. And here's at, the other crazy thing. The movie, um, La Mis- under the, Bajo La Misma Luna, Under the Same Moon, um, which... We put him in, but then we ended up not producing. Also went to Sundance that same year. And we were in competition. She, uh, that was in the like a secondary competition. But she sold that movie there to the Weinstein Company for like $5 million. Or I guess it was Miramax at the time. And we, um, we won the grand jury prize, but couldn't make a dollar on that movie. I mean, it was so hard. 2007 is when the independent market imploded, really. That was a beginning. That's when it was Sundance, 2006 yeah. or seven? 2007. Seven, yeah. and then trying to sell. Okay. Yeah. But it, it had a release in 07, but it just didn't... didn't. We we released it through IFC yeah. films, but we didn't make any money. We lost money on it. So... Um, but it was a beautiful film. It was amazing to win the grand... Like, that was my dream. Like, yeah. I'm 36, and you're standing up on a stage winning the grand jury, because I those were the movies that I loved. Like, remember, I mean, you and I are about the same age, so remember when, like, Reservoir Dogs and that whole yeah. 90s wave, that's the Sundance that I was... You know, the Coen brothers won the, fir- uh, the second year. Soderbergh won the first year. Like, it was... So awesome in those early days. Yeah. It's still a great festival, but so to win it was like, holy shit. And I remember 
there was this photo that was taken of Chris Zala, the director, uh, who I'm speaking to tomorrow on Skype about a new movie. Like, oh, you know, it's yeah, good. He's that's like, cool. Yeah, carry all the people with you. You know. Yeah. And and he uh, he's giving a speech, and they take a photo. I'm, I'm sitting behind him, and I have my hand on my chin, and I remember exactly what I was thinking in that moment. This photo is the photo that like goes around the world, and I was thinking, how is my life going to change? And the answer was. Not much. Yeah. Yeah. The amazing part was like, you know, that was the best day of my life. And the worst day of my life was 30 days later when we still hadn't sold the film. You know, the grand jury prize, it wasn't, it was the American grand jury prize. It was the biggest award you could win at the festival. And we were apparently like two votes away from the, you know, the uh, audience award too. It's a great movie, but it just, it's dark. It's in Spanish, no name actors, neo-realist ending will rip your fucking guts out. Like, it's just not, I mean, yeah. no one should be shocked, but, you know, it had a little bit of a life. But by the way, it's not even on iTunes anymore. Like, I don't know if really? there's just not enough digital space. I just wrote IFC. I was like, can See, we put I think on? something like that. You, that I mean, there's only like 30 of movies in the history of film that have won the Grand Jury Prize. Yeah. That's that You would think there's you would room, think, yeah. digital room for Think those. of all the terrible movies out there uh, that you can see. You know. But I, you know, look, if no one's watching it, I guess it really doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so how does that inform you? Wow, we're going to, we're going to, uh, this is going to be the longest, I believe, the first one to break two hours. Holy shit. <laughs> I, that's, okay. But, but we're, uh, no, but so I, I don't, you know, yeah. that's fine. By the it's, way, it's the good. Best I, Mark I'm loving Marin, these stories. The two best Mark Marin WTFs are Louis uh, C.K. Which I haven't heard that one. I've heard oh all my God, about it's it. Amazing! It's a two part. You maybe even told me about it. Someone recently yeah, was talking it's amazing. about that. It's three hours, but the William Friedkin, which is two and a half oh, hours, really? is so mind blown. Yeah. Um, anyway, you're not getting that, anything near that. But well, no, you got you got such great stories that I kind of don't want to stop. The so so okay so you know greatest day thirty days later worst day of your life like how does that inform the way you want to work, the kind of material you want to work on when you go, this is a movie I'm really proud of. This is a great movie. Yeah. You know, I guess at that I'm point, not making two cents off it. I, do, do you feel like you start to say like, okay, I got to do something with, you know, a, a commercial end game or do you go, no, I'm going to follow my gut and, and the money will follow. Like what, how does that look? I would say the way that your life changes when you win an award like that is simply, it gets a little easier with agents. Actors are a little more interested. Oh, okay. Maybe you have some taste, maybe, you know, so it did, it changes in almost imperceptible ways that are meaningful over time. Um, but I didn't really, I still just loved cinema and wanted to make things that, I still have a hard time not making things that I get intrigued by, whether they're like structurally a little different or, you know, I mean, I've made a lot of really like kind of weird movies. There's one called Love, Pain and Vice Versa, which tells the story of this this man and this woman from each of their points of view. And it's kind of weird and you know, there's been a lot of them. I made a movie in Argentina called Un Cuento Chino, which starts with a couple in China, and he, the guy's about to um, ask for her hand in marriage, and she's crushed by a cow that falls from the sky. 
And it's one of the highest grossing films in Argentina of all time. And it won the, uh, uh, the, the Spanish Academy Award for best Latin American movie. So I was still, and that was really? a kind of a wacky movie. Ricardo Lardin, do you know who he is? Uh, Did you see The Secret of Your Eyes, the original Argentinian one that won the Oscar? No, no. He, he, you as an actor, you have, to wa- you have to watch his movies. He is the best actor in Latin America. Javier Bardem said he's the best actor in the world, to put it. Really? Yeah. He's amazing. I, he, he, you will not be able to take your eyes off him. I'll get you a copy of Cuento Chino because that's a fun movie. Yeah. We're actually remaking that with Eugenio. But um, so I was still making wacky shit, but I was also like I made a movie called Ladron Que Roba Ladron with Jim, which is it's Ocean's Eleven meets the Bad News Bears. It's these like these, these uh, Latino thieves are trying to pull off this heist at a big party. And so they want to bring their old crew back together and they're going to go in as like the caterers and the valets. And, but their whole crew is like either been deported or in jail. And so they use real immigrants, like illegal immigrants to, to pull off this heist. And they're all of course, not very good at it. It sounds like bottle rocket almost. Yeah. A little bit. (laughs) It's a little, it's not quite as quirky as that movie, but, um, but it was super commercial, you know, and it was in Spanish and it was like the biggest telenovela actors from Mexico and Colombia. Um, and, you know, I think we, we made like seven or eight million in box office on it. It cost 1.6. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, you know, we were getting little hits here and there and that was very commercial. It was just like by the book commercial. But um, so we sort of tried a little of everything. Um, but what happened was for a couple of years, we just weren't really making much. We made some TV movies and, and, and I always say I moved to Miami to meet my wife. And once I met her, I was like, okay, it's time to go to LA. And we're, yeah. but I always said, I did not want to go to LA until somebody told me, Hey, come, I have a job for you, which is a hard thing to do. That was my thing too. Yeah, I always, I always thought I'll be in New York. And then if a job takes me to LA, I'll go. And then, and then that's what happened. That's it. Uh, West was Wing that? was, was here. Nice. I, I had come out for um, pilot season and I went in for what I thought was like an episode on the West Wing and then they brought me back and then awesome. next season they brought me back and, brought, and then and then I ended up unfortunately being the last season. I'm the guy who, you know, gets an office in the White House and the, the series finale. <laughs> like, like, you, you can't right. do a spinoff like yeah, ER right. was like, they right? Have. They would the, have like now. ER was like, like a hundred yards away right. on, on the Warner Brothers lot and they had like, you know, for years, for like 14 years, they had spun the show into like a whole new cast. And we yeah. thought, oh, okay, we're going to do the That's same. what they'll do here. And, and, uh, and then, it, and then it, it went away. But, um, but yeah, but that job, it was the same thing. I was like, if a job brings me out. Yeah. Cause come. it's too hard to come out here and knock on doors. Yeah. And so pa- Panamax, which is the name of our company in Miami, um, there was a, a biz- the guy, head of international business affairs at Lionsgate, saw an opportunity to take Panamax and merge it with Lionsgate and Televisa. Televisa is the Mexican media company that controls 80% of the media in, in Mexico and form a company called Pantaleon, which is pa- Panamax, Televisa, Lionsgate, which became essentially the, the Latino division of Lionsgate. And so I was brought out to LA to work production on for that company. And we made a bunch of movies. Um, we made one called Girl in Progress with Eva um, Mendez, um, which is it with Patricia Regan, who had done 
uh, Under the Same Moon, who I went to film school with. Right. And it wasn't a great movie. Um, Matthew Modine was in it. It was like, you know, when you meet the guys that like you loved when you were 10 yeah, to 16 yeah. years old, it's a different, like you meet somebody now, it's not the same thing. And Matthew Modine was my hero. I mean, yeah. like, when we were young, you're, you're 40, you're like three um, years younger than me, right? I think, yeah, yeah, because yeah, you're, so, you're virgin, yeah. So, so he was like my hero. So, uh, like that was yeah. more mind blowing to me than you know any of the actors I've worked with because he was that guy that I like. I don't know why it was just the movies he made yeah. in that period of time, and he worked with everybody, Altman, all the greats, Kubrick. Yeah, um, but Full it was a jacket. Fun... I feel like I need to revisit that one. Yeah, I haven't Full seen Metal that. Jack. Yeah, me yeah. too. Because I never, I only liked the first third of it, and then I never. The training, the the basic yeah, training. Yeah, the, the Vincent D'Onofrio. Oh. Amazing. Yeah, what an actor. But anyway, so it's, it's a it's an uneven movie, but it has it has, and then we made this movie called Spare Parts, which was based on a Wired magazine article about these four undocumented um, Mexican kids who uh, started a robotics club, and with. $800 and used car parts, built an underwater robot, went to the National Robotics Competition and um, decided they weren't going to, um, they weren't going to win. So they'd rather go compete in the college level competitions because it would be less embarrassing to lose to colleges. And they won the whole thing and they beat MIT and Harvard and all. True story. And then one of them got deported after that. Uh, so we made that movie huh. with Marissa Tomei and Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, George Lopez played the teacher. And uh, it's a beautiful movie. It's like a really... It's What's really, it called again? Spare Parts. Spare Parts. Um, didn't do any business. Didn't do any business. No, but it's a good yeah. movie and it's had a good life since. Well, it's, it's hard. So, you know, where do you see... Um, let's get into... And we don't even have to get... You know, so into it. We're we just passed the two hour yeah. mark, so uh, hopefully people drive. are digging this and still yeah, listening. Yeah. Um, By the way, when I we were doing the um, uh, director's commentary on how to be a Latin lover, actually, you just made you just scared me for a second. One second, okay. Okay, sorry, we had a little technical glitch there for a second. Well, not a glitch. We had a little fear. Um, so I don't even remember where where we were just then. Well, we were you were saying we don't have to go into. I don't oh know no no oh yeah, I, how to be a Latin lover. Yeah yeah. So well so okay so Pantaleones formed. We we start doing that, and then Eugenio makes this movie. Instructions not included. He made it independently. Pantaleone distributes it. You know, he and I are friends. He's calling me about, you know, like, help me with the poster, help me with the, like, just, he wanted me to interface with marketing a little bit to help Just him. kind of because you guys had gotten to know each other. Yeah, because yeah. we were close. We had yeah. to, at this point, like, our, our wives were friends. Like, we were, every time I flew down to Mexico City, which I did a lot, I'd always see him. Um, I put him in a b couple of movies and he would just like, I'd come home like, dude, will you do this movie for me? And you, I'll send it to you to read, but you need to say yes now. And he'd go, yes. Like yeah. he's, he's my boy. Like yeah, really. yeah. So, so uh, he has it, this movie's a phenomenon. I mean, he hundred million dollars. Like that opening weekend, it was it was on like four hundred screens at, at twenty five thousand per screen average. You know, which is huge. And all of a sudden, Monday morning, he's a overnight success. I called him. I was like, "Congratulations! It only took you thirty years to be an overnight success in Hollywood." But all of a sudden, everybody's focused on him. Huh. And 
What year was that? This was uh, 2014. Okay. So, so it's really recent. Really? Yeah. He was, you know, 50 years old and he's all of a sudden having this. And he had been in like, Adam Sandler did this movie called Jack and Jill and it was like, he said to his gardener, he's like, who's the funniest man in Mexico? And he calls up Eugenio and he's like, one day, and he's like, Eugenio, this is Adam Sandler. He's like, ah, come on, you know. Yeah. Wine, quit fucking with me. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so he'd done some stuff over time. He was in Girl in Progress, too. And um, he was there was a short-lived series called Rob on CBS that he was in. He, uh-huh. he, was, he was funny in it. Um, and, but this all of a sudden changed his life. And... At the time, he was at an agency, um, and they they hadn't, you know, look, he was not easy to market before that because his audience was so invisible to Hollywood. Yeah. You know, unless you, like, went to a restaurant and saw the kitchen staff coming out or at a valet stand, and not that that was his only audience, but you could, like, viscerally see it in those moments. Like, they, people, the people that run Hollywood are totally, they don't watch Univision, so they had no idea who he was. So, you know, he was at William Morris at the time and they just had a hard time selling him and they, they didn't, they didn't, where do you put him? It's like, you have to go to a studio head and say, put this guy in because it's just too disconnected. It's like this other audience. Until so, he makes a hundred million dollars. Right. The and then all of a sudden, yeah. and they're like parading him around town and he's going to all, and he's, it, it's like, he doesn't know what's going on. I mean, we literally meet studio heads now that he met during that, like, like victory and he doesn't lab. remember. And they're like, hey, it's great to see you again. He's like, I, I, he'd look at me like, I, I don't know what that is. Yeah. And, and he's like, yeah, yeah, we met when you were, you know, after. And he's like, oh, yeah. He's an actor. So he's like, yeah. oh, yeah, it's good to see you. But he has no idea. Yeah. So he was just like overwhelmed by that experience. And so I flew down to see him. And I said, I think you're going to, like, lightning does not strike twice. If you don't move fast you know, you're not going to have an opportunity. And so we decided to start a production company. So I left my position at Pantaleone and then we made a deal with Pantaleone because Pantaleone knows his audience, knows how to get to them. It's hard. It's not, it's like the studios are used to using a blunt instrument to market to masses of people. Yeah, They don't know, you know, they're not as good at fine tuning. So let let me ask you, is his popularity... uh, is is he like is it is it that grassroots thing that someone like you know Louis or or some of the the stand ups have with this where it's like this this email list that they've had forever that they built up or is his more like he's just been in in these movies that have struck a chord with people and over the years people have gotten to know him or is he like a crazy social media no he had those uh, comedies like, that he made all these comedies he made this one called familia peluche which was like a sitcom so everybody saw it but he didn't necessarily he didn't necessarily benefit from it as much as well he benefited he in that. terms of building an audience building an audience and then when he did under the same moon that was a big hit and then so he was building, 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 but he had no idea how big it was. Everybody was completely the the distributor. Nobody saw it coming. Yeah, no, there was not. Well, I, here, I guess what my, I'm not articulating it well enough. Was he like, uh, like I, I saw this? I got invited to something called um, on producing, and they had all these different people from mm-hmm. uh, you know different aspects of Hollywood, and one of them was Tyler Perry right. talking about his kind of his, grassroots campaign yeah. with the churches right. and doing the plays, right. and 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 he had this real 
producerial mind yeah. and vision of like, I'm going to have this very loyal audience yeah. and Hollywood doesn't know about it. And then I'm going to bring it to the table as a bargaining chip. Like it was very conscious. I thought yeah. the way he talked about it, at least is it the same kind of situation or just a matter of like people just really love? Well, him? the like, difference you, is that he built his audience with Spanish. So in this country, if you're listening to Spanish language media or watching Spanish language media, you're plugged into a certain star system. So you don't need the same, like Tyler Perry's thing was very specifically sort of middle-class educated, you know, uh, religious females was kind of his, nobody thought that was an audience. Right. Um, I mean, middle-aged, uh, educated kind of church going African-American female. Um, his audience was more like Spanish speakers. So if if you were so, yeah. sp Spanish dominant or bilingual, you probably knew him. And if you knew him, you probably liked him or your parents liked him and you were familiar with him or you just sort but of- But it's not him. like he was cultivating some no. mailing list or like- Now he, he has like 30 million followers on social media, but- 30 million followers. Yeah, yes. across all his platforms. But that was something that happened actually off of Instructions Included. They pulled all his- Twitter accounts together into a, you know, and they would take them back from fans, and then he started controlling them. And then once he now he has like a, he's very agile with with social media, and he knows how to engage his audience, and he doesn't use it to sell products. So it's a very genuine connection he has. But um, but he learned it on instructions, uh -huh. and uh, so he um, yeah, it was. Uh, it's nice to hear a story about a good guy, you know, who's talented yeah, who's and sounds like he's a, like a genuinely good human being. Is, and the, it, it's kind of a great, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a nice you one. Want, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's giving an award at the Oscars. Like he's not, he's, he's not nominated for one. He's just giving an award. It's such a big deal. It's, it's he, because he, he's, he grew out of Spanish language television. It's very different from like Salma or Gael or, who, by the way, deserve everything they have, but they they got sort of discovered and kind of brought into the Hollywood system, and then they sort of made it to the Oscars. He's been built up entirely by his audience yeah. to get to this point. Yeah. So it's amazing that he's going to be giving an award. By, by the time this pops up, it probably already has, and that's a big deal. It's a big deal for him, for us, I think for his audience. Yeah. You know, they're going to feel like really... But so so anyway, this thing hits. We decide to start a company three years ago, and then we just start developing film and television. Television, he's not, we're not really developing for him, but we had a deal with Universal TV for a few years, and we've sold a ton of shows, and, um, you know, it's hard to get them, it's hard to get them on the air, but yeah. it's a real uh, difficult game. But we're a couple that I think we will. And then on the movie side, we started out developing a bunch of different stuff. We got a lot of, we started with a lot of remakes from like little, a couple of obscure remakes because we thought it would be a faster way to fast track the process. But the first movie we ended up making was How to Be a Latin Lover, which was an original pitch. It was actually a TV show pitch that these guys came in and pitched us. And it was just about this sort of aging gigolo. And I said, you know, if he were Latin... He'd be a Latin lover, and Latin lover is immediately recognizable because we were looking for something that felt like it could cross over, even if yeah. he was starring in it. And it it didn't cross over in the theaters so much, although it did well for us. But it's crossed over like it's there's the On audience demand discovering and, and, it now, yeah. and we see it because people are stopping in the street that are not his core audience any longer. So yeah, 
Um, so and who else at Rob Lowe and uh, Salma Hayek, Salma Hayek, Kristen yeah. Bell, Rob Corddry. Great cast. Yeah, it was great. Mike, Michael Sarah's in it. I mean, it's just, it's. Huh, uh, yeah, great, great cast. It was, it was fun to make. It was a wacky movie. Ken Marino directed, who's a great character uh, yeah. actor. Um, and he's he's a great director. He's, he just really squeezes the. Con- By the way, I'm a big fan of you that. Know party how I met down. Ken Marino? No. John Stern, my producing partner, produced a bunch of shows that he directed. I called him up and said, I need a comedy director. I probably can't afford a guy who's had a successful feature career. So I need that guy who's about to burst. He said, there's only one guy, call Ken Marino. So huh. that all kept feeding back on itself. Did he? Did Ken Marino direct a bunch of Party Down? You ever watch yeah, Party Down? I don't, know if he, I don't think he did direct it, no. He didn't? Yeah, okay. No Party Down. Yeah. I love that. I was yeah, like, everybody loves that show. That's a great, yeah. Yeah, and he's he's good. He's good at playing like smarmy dicks. Yeah. But he's a lovely guy and he's very funny. He seems like a uh yeah, he's like a good guy. I did something with, I did something with him but I didn't actually work with him. I did uh what was it? Uh a show called Marry Me. Oh yeah, yeah. He yeah, was yeah. the lead. Did Rob Greenberg by any chance direct your episode? Um who directed tall, tall Jewish dude. I don't think so. Because Rob directed and, a couple of his episodes, but Rob directed Overboard with Bob Fisher. Ah. Yeah. Which yeah, but you—that's what you're telling tell me about the, uh, yeah. at, at um, uh, Dave's house. Yeah, yeah. So overboard comes out April thirteenth. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, that's the, so. Let's talk about that so people can hear it. So yeah. this will this will be our natural segue into our wind down here. <laughs> uh, so overboard the two hour wind it. Tell me, tell me about so overboard. MGM, when, when's it? What's the date? It's coming April thirteenth. Okay, so we'll have to. Uh, you plug that on the front of We'll us. have to, yeah, we'll plug that on the front. <laughs> Who's going to make it to hour uh, By the way, <laughs> my email is odesky at me.com. If you have made it this far, please send me an email. I, I did, but, odesky at me.com. O-D-E-S-K-I. If you've made it this far and you actually email him, you get a part in his next movie. (laughs) And you can't be my wife. That doesn't count. Uh, Um, We'll see if anybody, this is how we're going to test if anybody's actually listening. Well, by the way, I did this with the director's commentary on how to be a Latin lover. And I've gotten like every once in a while, I get an email from someone like, yes, I listened all the way through. That's pretty funny. (laughs) That's pretty funny. I hope people are listening. I I feel like there's so many. Pieces it's of gold a huge commitment to, to get um, through two hours of listening. Someone's to on me. a road trip, you know. Yeah. Uh, wait, so so uh, April thirteenth, it yeah. comes out. Overboard, uh, it's a remake. It's a remake. So MGM, so, uh, we got a call from our agent. MGM's interested in you guys remaking Overboard. Are you are you interested? And so Eugenio and I watched it. I mean, I'd seen it a million times, but we watched it again, and we're like, "Do we do this? Like, this feels like a." really dangerous idea you know you take a classic cult classic and what can you do with it so we kind of broke it down and we eventually kind of realized there was a with with some changes it could be really interesting the biggest being flipping the roles because a making him a the son of Carlos Slim, who's one of the richest men in the world, who's Mexican. Basically, he's not really, but we always said that he was sort of modeled after that. Um, you know, immediately, like, how often have you seen Mexicans depicted as uber wealthy? They exist. 
you know, but yeah. you know, you never, you never see that in film and television. So that's immediately interesting to us. And then we loved the idea that, you know, first of all, he's, they are the most wealthy and sophisticated characters in the movie. Yeah. Uh, Anna Ferris is an inch above working class and she's got three daughters and everybody else in the movie is Latino. So it's a very Latino take on it. And then, you know, women empowerment. So it's this woman who, ta- you know, is screwed over by this powerful man and kind of takes things into her own hands. So we love that. And then, you know, when when he ends up uh being sort of forced into this uh, weird position, she she doesn't want him near the kids, so she sends him to work every day. She needs it's a dual income house. The husband died. Now she can't keep her shit together, and so she sends him to work construction. And so he's working with these uh, you know immigrants who. And the best scenes in the movie are some of the best. I mean, uh, the movie's great, but like some of my favorite scenes are the scenes in Spanish with his uber wealthy family. The yeah. two sisters and the father and the working class guys who are all comedians. One of them was the star of Padre Nuestro, which won Sundance. So he's one of those guys. Huh. And then these two c- comedians, that, and they're just amazing. And they're so human and three-dimensional. And so it's... it's so you're really happy with the movie. I'm really happy. I mean, yeah. I was terrified. You know, it's also like when you take these kind of high concept romantic comedies, they can go... Terribly wrong, but Rob and Bob, who wrote it, Rob, so Rob Greenberg, who who wrote eight seasons of um, of uh, Frasier and how to, he did every season of How I Met Your Mother, and he's directed a lot of pilots. And Bob Fisher wrote Wedding Crash. Oh, so Bob Fisher did uh, a couple of friends of mine um, were in Sirens, Sirens. Yeah. yeah, and they loved Bob Fisher. Yeah, Bob Fisher loved is the most lovable. They said he and Dennis Leary. It was like a dream job. Actually, one of the guys I I Who is interviewed it? here, Kevin Daniels, and the other one, Mike Mosley. I was in Hot Pursuit with. Uh, I'll, I'll have him on the show at some point. He's a great actor, and I I had known him from New York. We were in something not together, but then we 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 were like in the same movie in different segments. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then we played partners. We were like corrupt cops in this Reese Witherspoon. So, uh, yeah, they loved Bob Fisher. They said he was Bob Fisher's the best, great. Man. Yeah. But, and so is Rob. They're just great human beings. So they wrote it. So we got, we'll, we'll, we'll try to get through. This yeah. Possibly. We're going to, uh, we promise we're going to end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but Bob, uh, so we tried to get, we read the script that they had written and we were trying to, I was trying to get them in and they, and everybody was afraid to rewrite, like any high level comedy writer was afraid of Overboard. So we're getting passes. Talk about 10,000 no's. We got 10,000 no's. You got a studio ready to make a movie, star attached, nobody wants to write it. So Rob and Bob pass on it. They're like, no, we're not, we're not going to rewrite a classic. Somehow I just, I keep calling Bob's agent. I'm like, can, can we just have a general with him? Like. You know, because I, I love this one script they wrote. Finally, we get a call. You know, Bob wants to meet you guys. So Bob comes in. And then when, when I met Bob, it all made sense because he's like a sponge. He's just a really curious guy. But he comes in and he's like, look, my wife is half Mexican. And my mother-in-law is like, if you don't go meet Eugenio Derbez, I'm never going to talk to you again. And that's why he came in. But when he came in, I was like, look, we want to flip the roles we think if we do that, there's this, these are all the things it would do. And we had some other ideas that we kind of threw at him. He's like, hey, I really like that. I'm going to talk to Rob about this. The next thing you know, they're pitching to MGM. And these guys are rock stars like yeah. on the comedy side. So they 
they write the script, the first draft. Like these guys brought us into their, they're like, look, we're going to bring you into our office while the movie's up on cards and we're going to walk you through the whole movie and you can give us notes then. Yeah. And we did it twice. We went through the whole movie and gave notes and they did it. So when they delivered their first draft, literally is the size of this room, right? There's three by five cards up on every single wall. Every one of them filled like they, it was so, they were so precise and the final movie is not that different from the movie they walked us through. I mean, we you know, we yeah. made some adjustments along the way, but they're just real craftsmen and yeah. really, really good. And then they said, hey, we'd like to throw our hat in to direct. And when they pitched as directors, they were just as, like, you, even yeah. though it was their first feature, like, you knew they were going to deliver. Yeah. And they delivered. That's awesome. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, April 13th. Yeah. And, um, and wide release. Yeah. Uh, you know, 1,500 screens, which is, you know. Wide enough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Anna, Anna Ferris is awesome. She's yeah, very she's funny great. in it. Um, but I think they're sort of looking at it like, you know, platform. You know, you, you want a comedy to come out like a Judd Apatow comedy comes out on 2,500, 3,000 screens. But it, it is wide by definition. Yeah. Anything over 1,000 is wide. Yeah. Release. Um, so Overboard. Coming out April 13th, guys, if you're still with us. This is Ben O'Dell. Also, go on demand and uh, check out How to Be a Latin Lover. We're going to uh, pull up some of those old films <laughs> on VHS and yeah. find out how to get those yeah. to you. Yeah, right. um, thank you so much for yeah, being man, here, man. Yeah, man, this is awesome. This is, this is very, very you, cool uh, you, you, You're good at this, man. Oh, thank you. Thanks again for listening to 10,000 No's. If you haven't subscribed to us yet, please do. So each week's episode is automatically downloaded to your computer or phone. And if you like what you heard, please help us get the word out by sharing it with your friends and family. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.